humans, we run scenarios in our heads all the time, trying to predict how our actions might play out. But the only way to test our theories is to take action in the real world. What if we could accurately simulate the world? Try different actions in parallel realities, perhaps thousands of times, see the consequences, and then go back and try again. We have some Microsoft folks joining us for the call today. So Keith works for Microsoft, Meg works for Microsoft, Scott Stanfield works for Microsoft. I just want to make it clear that this is their personal opinions. We haven't revealed any confidential information. This is not intended to be a sales pitch for Bonsai. I don't work for Microsoft anymore. So I'm certainly not under any obligation to give a sales pitch. Um, enjoy the show. Can you just put a second ball on it? I just want to see what happens. Yeah, you're, you're laughing. <laughs> Well, it's keeping one up there. So it's it's just, it's almost disregarding one. Mm-hmm. Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay. What happens if you put both on at the same time? Yeah, it does that thing. Yeah. It sort of knocks them both off. Yeah. Think about it. It's got no it gets confused. Let's agree. This is, this is um, a wonderful anecdote for machine learning in general. Because yep. you, you train a model to do a task. And then you wonder why when you give it something completely different. It's not completely different. It's just a generalization. <laughs> hey, Meg, how's it going? Hey, Tim, I'm doing good in you. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. So I'm Megan Blumschma. I'm a cloud solution architect working for Microsoft, living in the Netherlands. But I'm traditionally a data scientist. It's what I've been trained on. It's what I got my master's in. That's how we know each other. Yeah, so from the Netherlands and uh, very excited to be here and finally put my brain to work about some machine teaching. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, so uh, Meg and I met each other a few years ago at at, at Microsoft. We were partners in crime. And today (laughs) is a pretty cool day because Microsoft have sent me one of these Project Moabs. It's an impressive looking device, isn't it, Meg? It's beautiful. Yeah, so this Project Moab, it's, um, as you can see, it's a piece of hardware with, uh, well, it's basically a plate with a ping pong ball. And what Tim is doing seems pretty easy. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) Good timing. So this is the Project Moab, which is basically a piece of hardware that has a plate on it and a ping pong ball. And what this piece of hardware has done is you can teach it how to balance the ping pong ball. So as you can see, Tim is kind of not just placing it on there, but throwing it on there and the plate will balance itself out to make sure the ball doesn't fall off. What I think is really interesting about this is, um, and I told Tim this as well, is I showed this to my parents and I'm super excited about this and they just weren't really getting into why this is so exciting. What if before taking an action in the real world, the autonomous agent took thousands of actions in a parallel reality, looked at the outcome of those actions, and then selected the best action to take in the real world. Microsoft bought a company called Bonsai in 2018. It was a San Francisco-based startup focusing on platformatizing deep reinforcement learning, moving away from games and into real-world applications, being able to optimize physical processes and systems. 
Reinforcement learning is a bit different to traditional machine learning in the sense that we're learning by exploring an environment and we don't know the actual answers to our predictions while we're training. You know, we often hear that being able to monitor and maintain things using AI is, is a good thing, but I suppose what Bonsai want to do is move into the realm of being able to optimize and automate physical processes. There are four killer problems in deep reinforcement learning ladies and gentlemen one reward sparsity two deceptive search spaces three generalization and four sample efficiency this is what's coming in today's presentation yeah but I'm, i want to know what the magic is because there is no magic no that's what i was thinking too right. it's, it's it's as it's as if somebody said yeah, you know, you're doing these old school linear fits and you're throwing in the data and you're calculating all these like error squares and everything. What if I could just come give you two numbers, a slope and an intercept, and you could get the solution from <laughs> this that? This is a hypothetical example. We get that. I get yeah. it, but, but yeah. some hypothetical examples are silly. Well, no, I think this is quite illustrative because in almost all machine learning problems, most of the data is irrelevant. It, just, it sounds like... The intersection of a bunch of, of things that... So one is this notion of inverse reinforcement learning or uh, imitation learning, um, where you sort of learn from expert demonstrations, right? The second one is sort of curriculum learning, where you assume that you have an expert that can sort of guide you in which examples are the next best to learn. And then the, the last one is um, reward shaping. So I, I see that the, I, sh I see the machine teaching angle like that the framing of things I, I don't see the novel like I don't see what what makes this its own field. I'm a member of this uh, new this team called Project Bonsai and we're part of the uh, research group that's taking machine learning or machine teaching out into to our customers in this industrial autonomy scenario. Okay, there's this amazing article by Alex Erpan called Deep Reinforcement Learning Doesn't Work Yet. I honestly recommend that anyone even thinking about embarking on a deep reinforcement learning project should read this article. It was written in, in 2018, but it's almost 100, well, it basically is 100% relevant today. And I think this article gives a little bit of insight into why Bonsai exists. Um, Certainly when I worked at Microsoft, there were loads of reinforcement learning cowboys creating reinforcement learning projects and they were almost always a complete waste of time and money and they failed. And the problem is, it's so easy to have a false sense of security when it comes to reinforcement learning. Even if you're an expert in machine learning, it's an order of magnitude harder to do deep reinforcement learning. And I don't think people realize just how finicky and how complicated it is. So it starts off with a meme. Whenever someone asks me if reinforcement learning works, I tell them it doesn't. And 70% of the time, I'm right. He says that deep reinforcement learning is surrounded by mountains and mountains of hype. And for good reasons. Reinforcement learning is an incredibly general paradigm. And in principle, a robust and performant reinforcement learning system should be great at everything. So merging this paradigm with the empirical power of deep learning is an obvious fit. Deep reinforcement learning is one of the closest things which looks anything like AGI. And that's the kind of dream that fuels billions of dollars of funding. Unfortunately, it doesn't work yet.
He believes that it can work. He says that there's lots of problems in the way, many of which feel fundamentally difficult. And he said the beautiful demos of all the learned agents hide all of the blood, sweat and tears that go into creating them. It's really important that you you get that. So he says that many people get lured by the recent exciting work and they try deep reinforcement learning for the first time and without fail, they underestimate the difficulty of deep reinforcement learning. The toy problem is not as easy as it looks and without fail, the field destroys them a few times until they learn how to set realistic expectations. I I think this is a real concern. If you are, especially if you're outside of the tech industry, if you have an internal team working on deep reinforcement learning because they've been excited about all of the hype and so on, you should really take a look at that because you're probably wasting your time. This is one of the reasons why Bonsai has a very clear interface and a consulting model because I think there's a realization that deep reinforcement learning is just very error prone, very, very difficult, and it's not really something you should be embarking on on your own because you'll probably fail. Now, the main problem, deep reinforcement learning can be hideously sample inefficient. Remember the Deep Q Networks paper? That took something like 200 million iterations to converge on those Atari games. And there was no generalization. You had to build a new model for every single game. There was this Rainbow DQN paper from 2017, which kind of did an ablation study and kind of showed the relative contributions to all the different reinforcement learning algorithms up to that time. And uh, they exceeded uh, human level performance on over 40 of the 57 Atari games attempted. Uh, More recently with Go Explore, it's now all of the games. On the y-axis here, they've got a median human normalized score. So it's computed by training 57 DQNs for each of the Atari games and then normalizing the score of each agent such that the human performance is 100% and then plotting the median performance against 57 games. So Rainbow DQN passes the 100% threshold at about 18 million frames and that's about 83 hours of gameplay experience. That's actually significantly more sample efficient than what went before, but it's still very, very sample inefficient when you take into consideration that a human can just start playing one of those Atari games within a few minutes and be able to be productive at it. So the take-home message is learning a policy will usually take more samples than you realize. There's quite a cool example here. This is the DeepMind parkour paper from 2017. And uh, they trained a policy using 64 workers for over 100 hours. The results are really cool. So essentially they had a kind of skeletal system with uh, with joints and the reinforcement learning policy was um, controlling all of those joints. And the reward function basically was quite an easy one. It didn't really have deception because if, if you see this particular search environment, there isn't deception in the, in the search space. It's just you're just kind of going from one side of the map to the other side of the map. But um, in spite of that, the solution was very sample inefficient. So the author also points out that if you just care about final performance, then many problems are better solved by other methods. There's an example here on the um, Majuko uh, robot demo using model predictive control instead, and the results are pretty good. And using model predictive control, they could also do planning against a world model or a simulator. As the author points out here, it's also possible to easily outperform DeepQ networks just using an off-the-shelf Monte Carlo tree search. So... In most cases, just using a domain-specific method is actually better than using deep reinforcement learning. So it says that the rule of thumb is that domain-specific methods work faster and better than reinforcement learning. He said one of the reasons why he liked AlphaGo was it was one of the first unambiguous wins for deep reinforcement learning. Classic example here being Boston Dynamics, you might think that they use reinforcement learning. 
No, you'd be wrong. They use time-varying LQR, QP solvers, and convex optimization. They don't use reinforcement learning. So reinforcement learning assumes the existence of a reward function. Usually this is given or hand-tuned or kept fixed over the course of learning. And there are um, exceptions, as Alex points out. So when we're doing inverse reinforcement learning or uh, imitation learning, of course. So he says, importantly, for reinforcement learning to do the right thing, your reward function must capture exactly what you want to do. Reinforcement learning has this annoying tendency to overfit your reward, leading to do things that you didn't expect. And this is why the Atari is such a nice benchmark, right? Because it, it gives you the reward function. The reward function is the score. Uh, so um, not only is it easy because you get to sample loads and loads of frames from the game, the goal in every game is just to maximize the score, which makes it really, really easy. You don't have to worry about defining your reward. He also says this is the reason why these Majoko tasks are so um, uh, popular. So when you start off in reinforcement learning, most of the rewards are sparse, which means it's only at the end of the game uh, that you know whether you've won or not. So what do we do? Well, we densify the rewards so that every single step in the game, we have some indication of we're doing better. And then we can monotonically optimize on that reward. But then we introduce deception into the problem. So it's not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. Alex says that shape rewards can bias learning. It can lead to behaviors that don't match what you want. Yeah, and a great example of this is the Coast Runners 7 game. And this is where the boat completely forgot that the main objective of the game is to go around the map. One of the intermediate kind of reward shaping goals was to pick up these bonuses along the way. And the boat is now just picking up the bonuses the entire time and has completely forgotten that it should be going around the entire map. So Alex says, of course, reinforcement learning does weird things when the reward is misspecified. He says that reinforcement learning algorithms fall along a continuum where they get to assume more or less knowledge about the environment they're in. The broadest category, model-free reinforcement learning, is almost the same as a black box optimization method. These methods are only allowed to assume that they are in a Markov decision process. He gives another example. There was a paper from Salesforce in 2017 and the goal was text summarization and they just had to optimize on the Rouge score. So, of course, reinforcement learning gave the highest Rouge score with a, you know, 41.16. And this was the text that was created. It's fairly nonsensical, of course. So Lewis Hamilton has full stop in 11 races, full stop, full stop, the race, full stop to lead 2000 laps, full stop, full stop in, full stop, full stop. And so, you know, it just goes to show that um, Artificial intelligence is very problematic, right? Because you have to design these benchmarks and these reward functions and these metrics, and there are always shortcuts. So the problem becomes stopping your reinforcement learning model or machine learning model from taking those shortcuts. There's another example here from Popov in 2017. So the Lego stacking paper, uh, one of the failure modes was that the learn policy learned to tip the red block over instead of picking it up. And Alex says here, for reference, uh, here's one of the reward functions from the Lego stacking paper, uh, which is hilariously complicated. He said he didn't know how much time they spent designing this reward, but based on the number of terms and the number of different coefficients, he guessed a lot, right? So even given a good reward, local optima can be hard to escape. So we've just spoken about reward hacking in the previous section, but also there's this thing about deceptive search problems and, and local optima. And Alex points out he thinks this is to do with the exploration exploitation trade-off. And, and I agree, this is absolutely about we need to explore the search space properly so that we don't get stuck in a local optima. So this is an implementation of the normalized advantage function on the half cheater environment. And as you can see, the cheater has now learned to run upside down on its back. 
So this is equivalent. Remember the maze example I showed you before. This is like getting stuck in a local optimum because the search space is deceptive. Alex comments here, from an outside perspective, this is really, really dumb, but we can only say it's dumb because we can see the third person view. We have a bunch of pre-built knowledge that tells us running on your feet is better. It's all about knowledge. DeepRL is popular because it's the only area in ML where it's socially acceptable to train on the test set. He says the upside of reinforcement learning is that if you want to do well in an environment, you're free to overfit like crazy. The downside is that if you want to generalize to any other environment, you're probably going to do poorly because you overfit so badly, right? DeepQ networks can solve loads of Atari games, but it does so by focusing on learning a single goal, getting really good at one game. The final model won't generalize to any of the other games because it hasn't been trained that way. Lang Tot in 2017 at Neurep showed a similar result. Here are two agents playing laser tag. The agents are trained with multi-agent reinforcement learning. To test generalization, they run the training with five random seeds. And here's a video of the agents that have been trained against one another. So, so far so good. You can see that they learn to move towards each other and shoot each other. And they took one player from the experiment. They pitted it against player two from another experiment. If the learned policies generalized, then we should see similar behavior. Only we don't. This seems to be a running theme in multi-agent reinforcement learning, says Alex. Uh, when agents are trained against one another, a kind of co-evolution happens. The agents get really good at beating each other, but when they get deployed against another unforeseen agent, performance drops. The only difference between these videos is the random seed. He goes on to say, even ignoring generalization issues, the final results can be unstable and hard to reproduce. Almost every machine learning algorithm has hyperparameters. Supervised learning is fairly stable, right? Because we have a fixed data set, ground truth targets. If you change the hyperparameters even a little bit, your performance probably won't change that much. So Alex says that currently deep reinforcement learning isn't stable at all, and it's hugely annoying for researchers. He said that he started working at Google Brain and one of the things he wanted to do was implement the algorithm from the normalized advantage function uh, paper. He assumed that it would only take him two to three weeks, but it took him about six weeks to reproduce the results. And thanks to several software bugs, uh, you know, the question is, why did it take him so long to do this? He says, and by the way, this is a guy that was working at Google Brain. You know, this is one of the smartest people imaginable. Imagine how long it would take you to do it. Let's consider the simplest task in the OpenAI gym, the pendulum task. In this task, there's a pendulum anchored at a point with gravity acting on the pendulum and the input status three-dimensional the action space is one-dimensional so the amount of torque to apply the goal is to balance the pendulum perfectly straight up so this is a really simple problem and it's made even easier by a well-shaped reward so reward is defined by the angle of the pendulum actions bringing the pendulum closer to vertical will not only give reward they will give an increasing reward and the reward landscape is basically concave so it can't really get any simpler than that and he gives a, a video below demonstrating the policy that he found well the pendulum doesn't even stand up straight but at least it seems to counteract the gravity the next thing is he kind of trained this about 10 times and only seven out of the 10 runs worked so three of the, the runs didn't even work there was a 30 percent failure rate do you count that as working or not he gives an example here of another paper from Europe's in 2016 and they were trying some different reinforcement learning algorithms on a problem and as you can see there's just this incredible variability right so he says there's lots of variance in supervised learning too but it's rarely this bad he said that if my supervised learning code failed to beat random chance 30% of the time, he'd have super high confidence that there'd be a bug in the loading or the training. 
Now, this is really interesting. He quotes this picture from Why is Machine Learning Hard? And the core thesis is that machine learning adds more dimensions to your space of failure cases, which exponentially increases the number of ways you can fail. Deep reinforcement learning adds a new dimension, random chance. The only way that you can address random chance is by throwing enough experiments at the problem to drown out the noise. When your training algorithm is both sample inefficient and unstable, it heavily slows down your rate of productive research. Maybe it only takes one million steps, but when you multiply that by five random seeds and then multiply that by hyperparameter tuning, you see an exploding amount of compute to test hypotheses effectively. I think this diagram is absolutely fascinating because I often talk about why machine learning is the high interest credit card of technical debt. And I say it's because it's not just code. We also have models and data, but it's so much more than that. Look at this, you know, model issues and algorithm correctness and implementation correctness. Every new dimension that you introduce to the problem here, you are blowing up the, the space of possible failure modes. This is why it's so difficult to do machine learning in the first place and why you shouldn't do machine learning unless you have to. So um, there was a Hacker News comment from Andre Kapathy back when he was at OpenAI. And he said, if it makes you feel any better, I've been doing this for a while now. It took me at least six weeks to get a from scratch policy gradients implementation to work 50% of the time on a bunch of RL problems. If it's taking Andre Kapathy nearly six weeks to get something working, how, how long do you think it's going to take you to get something working? He says also... What we know about a good CNN design from supervised learning land doesn't seem to apply to reinforcement learning land because you're mostly bottlenecked by the credit assignment or supervision bitrate, not by the lack of a powerful representation. He says that supervised learning wants to work. Even if you screw something up, you usually get something non-random back. Reinforcement learning, on the other hand, must be forced to work. If you screw something up or you don't tune something well enough, you're exceedingly likely to get a policy that is even worse than random. Long story short, your failure is more likely due to the difficulty of deep reinforcement learning and much less due to the difficulty of designing neural networks. So I think that's really fascinating. And if Andre Kapathy said that, then you know that we should be listening. So Alex in the article goes on to say that instability to random seed is like a canary in the coal mine. If pure randomness is enough to lead to this much variance between runs, just imagine how much an actual difference in the code can make. There was a paper called Deep Reinforcement Learning That Matters um, in AAAI in 2018, and it concluded multiplying the reward function by a constant can cause significant differences in performance. So complete lack of robustness. Five random seeds, a common reporting metric, may not be enough to argue significant results. Different implementations of the same algorithm have different performance on the same task, even when the same hyperparameters are used. He said that his theory is that reinforcement learning is very sensitive to both your initialization and the dynamics of your training process. Your data is always collected online, and the only supervision you get is with a single scalar for reward. A policy that randomly stumbles onto good training examples will bootstrap itself much faster than a policy that doesn't. A policy that fails to discover good training examples in time will collapse towards learning nothing at all as it becomes more confident that any deviation it tries will fail. 
So he goes on to say, um, what about all of the great things deep reinforcement learning has done for us? Well, he says that outside of the successes reported by DeepMind, etc., it's, it's quite hard to find cases where deep reinforcement learning has created any practical or real world value. Uh, he said he tried to think of real world use cases and it was surprisingly difficult. He said he expected to find something in recommender systems, but it was dominated by contextual bandits and collaborative filtering. I think this has probably changed a little bit now. I'm, I'm sure there are some fairly good examples of deep reinforcement learning being used out there. This is probably the only part of the article that is dated. But to be honest, not by a lot. I don't think there are many examples out there of reinforcement learning. I've seen some marketing people online say that prescriptive AI, you know, which is when you actually make decisions and act in an environment, is true AI, and normal vanilla machine learning is not true AI. And to be honest, this really annoys me. I think they need to read Francois Cholet's On the Measure of Intelligence. I mean, first of all, you have this thing called the McCorduck effect, which is that every time we make a breakthrough in artificial intelligence, there's always a chorus of people that say, oh, that's not really intelligent. What's really fascinating is that Cholet in his paper, um, actually I'm amazed that Google didn't fire him for that paper because he was certainly going against the grain, but he came up with a formalism of intelligence which makes reinforcement learning algorithms look really dumb. I'm not saying that Cholet is definitely correct. There are different schools of thought, for example, Legg and Hutter in their own conception of universal intelligence. They think of intelligence as being an agent being able to perform a variety of tasks in different environments. Francois Cholet has an anthropocentric view of intelligence and he thinks that intelligence basically is kind of like generalization ability and skill acquisition normalized by the amount of experience and the amount of priors that you have. So, you know, said slightly differently, he thinks that intelligence is the efficiency at which you turn experience into generalizable programs. He also advocates for this kind of embodied conception of intelligence. He thinks that intelligence emerges from the interaction between a brain, a body, and an environment. So a lot of the ideas here actually come from Francisco Varela, the uh, cyberneticist. Do you remember we were talking to Professor Mark Bishop a couple of weeks ago, and he also believes in an embodied intelligence. So I suppose in that sense, Francois Cholet doesn't really think that any brain can be intelligent. You know, intelligence is actually an emergent behavior. A brain must be embodied right so a brain is in a body and the body interacts with the environment and intelligence is actually something that emerges from that entire process but it's still possible for the brain to have an intelligence potential which Francois Cholet thinks is a function of its information acquisition efficiency and you know it, it must be dialed down by any explicit knowledge or experience that you give it. By the way, Yannick and I have made about six hours worth of videos on Francois Cholet's On the Measure of Intelligence paper, so um, I really recommend you check those out. And by the way, Francois Cholet might possibly be coming on the podcast at some point, so uh, watch out for that. But yeah, I, I think it's a little bit misguided, this marketing material saying that when you act in a system, it becomes more intelligent. To a certain extent, that's true, as we know from some of the DeepMind papers, that you can actually learn causal factors when you interact with a system. But what is that system? That system is actually a simulator, which has been explicitly coded. So the reflexivity isn't really there because the simulator will only give you states that have been explicitly coded. And also, it only interacts with the system during train time. During test time, the policy is completely fixed and remember intelligence is actually embodied it's about how brains and bodies interact with their environment so i think it's very very um strange to refer to you know this kind of prescriptive intelligence as being the real intelligence and by the way that slide came from gartner so i mean that's i mean i already think that anything in powerpoint has zero credibility but if it's got gartner written on it it's got even less credibility so i really think francois chalet is onto something about having the generalization 
having to train the model 57 times for every single Atari game, that doesn't really impress me. It would be much better if you could train the same model on the 57 games and be able to generalize between the games. And then maybe, what if you didn't train on all 57 and then you could zero shot the same model on one of the other Atari games? That would actually be a demonstration of generalization. But what we know already is that the models don't even generalize inside one of the games. They overfit, they learn weird patterns, and they have hardly any robustness. So um, I think there's a real kind of challenge here around generalization. And this focus or this obsession with kind of skill or benchmark type performance, I think is getting us into a real cul-de-sac in artificial intelligence. But anyway, coming back to Bonsai, as we said before, if intelligence is the skill acquisition, efficiency and generalization divided by priors and experience, well, the thing is, we don't need intelligence. Remember, intelligence is about learning the structure of the maze, but we already know the structure of the maze for many industrial control problems and automation problems. So why don't we imbue that knowledge into the system? As far as bonsai is concerned, intelligence is irrelevant, right? What we need to do is solve some physical processes and some industrial control problems, and we already know what the structure of the maze is. We can actually create this hybrid predictive architecture, and some of it will be learned, and some of it will be an expert system. And if we don't care about intelligence, if we just care about being able to perform one task well, then it's a function of knowledge, experience, and information acquisition. So we can minimize the effect of information acquisition, which is the part that we have to learn, by imbuing the system with experience and knowledge. So essentially, if we formalize that as an interactive process, we are cheating, and we can actually do what we want to do much better. So yeah, the thing I love about Cholet is he just drops truth bombs like it's going out of fashion. He said recently that as far as current machine learning is concerned, generalization originates from the ability to learn the latent manifold on which the training data lies, i.e. the ability to interpolate between training samples, local generalization by definition. He says, as such, attempting to study generalization by fitting models to random data is a category error since such data offers no possibility of generalization. To understand generalization, you must look at the relationship between models and natural data manifolds. He says that in the future, AI will be capable of extrapolation, not just interpolation, broad generalization, and further general intelligence. This is an endeavor entirely orthogonal to the kind of interpolation and curve fitting that we're seeing now with deep learning. He says that it will be achieved through an entirely different set of techniques. He finishes by saying, of course, interpolation and pattern recognition are nevertheless a fundamental component of intelligence, just not the most powerful thing. Being able to do it well by refining deep learning is still immensely valuable. Now, let's talk about machine teaching. Now, Bonsai, they use this term machine teaching a lot, and it was something that I initially had an allergic reaction to. And the reason for that is if you go on to Google and you search for machine teaching, you get something completely different. Machine teaching um, academically is all about, well, what if I already knew what the optimal model was to do something? So I already had the parameters for the model. What is the most salient and parsimonious data set I could give to that model so that when we train again from scratch, we obtain the same parameters. And the idea of the best uh, training set here is we, we can use this concept called the teaching dimension to reason about this and it's very similar you know it's similar to complexity theory basically and machine teaching is harder than machine learning now remember this is an academic exercise because if we already know what the best model is 
then we don't need to do machine learning, right? So this is a fairly pointless exercise. And the other thing is that machine teaching in this context is NP hard. It's very, very difficult to solve this optimization problem to find the minimum data set to obtain the same model parameters that we had before. But what this means, though, is in the case of an SVM, the minimum um, amount of data to learn the optimal SVM hyperplane that we already found, in this case, would just be two examples. I mean, later on, Yannick said that it might be three examples, and we'll we'll uh, touch on that as, as we come to it. It's a similar thing if we want to estimate a, a Gaussian density. We only need to have three examples in order to best estimate the Gaussian density. But if we just generalize a little bit, the, the concept with machine teaching is we're still doing machine learning but machine learning is just hideously inefficient right just think about the infinity of data there is surrounding this gaussian density and almost all of it is irrelevant almost all of the data here in the svm is irrelevant well it is relevant because the training algorithm still looks at it but with a little bit of domain knowledge we can actually discard almost all of that data so one of the ways that we can overcome the sample efficiency problem in machine learning is by being a little bit smarter about how we hold the hand of the machine learning algorithm during training. Now, there was a guy at Microsoft called Patrice Simhad, and he popularized this concept of machine teaching, and he even published a paper on it. And he had a slightly different vision on this. And to be honest, when I read, read his paper for the first time, uh, I had the same feeling. I think we both discussed that there was kind of a bullshit alarm going off a little bit. Uh, but digging into it, like I've become a little bit more convinced of it. Although I still find it a little bit difficult to, to kind of get a grasp on it, right? It's also because we are Microsoft and we've thrown a, a beautiful marketing sauce over it. So his idea of machine teaching is that we should take the machine learning process and we should make it an interactive process with domain experts, if you like, to build the model. And almost from a kind of software engineering point of view, we should formalize how all of those steps work from the end to end. So I suppose his idea of machine teaching was instead of focusing on the ML algorithm knowledge, take a step back and just focus on what you want to teach and how best to teach it. Traditional machine learning is about extracting knowledge from data. What we're doing is different. Machine teaching is about extracting knowledge from the human teacher that's used to train a machine learning model. I'm going to introduce you to building both a classification and extraction model in Pickle. And I'll show you how powerful decomposing a problem and combining models can be. The second thing a teacher does is look for examples and labels them. I've searched for a recipe that we can label as positive. Yellow highlights are for my search term, and blue highlights are for words that are contained in my explanations. We can see that our current in-progress model does not think this is a recipe. The blue highlights show where my model is predicting that there are ingredients. My model's getting lots of the ingredients right, but not all of them. So I would continue to correct the errors by creating more explanation and labeling more ingredient examples like this to increase the accuracy. My extractor model isn't perfect, but let's see what happens when we use it as an input for our classifier. I will turn on the ingredient extractor and the model will automatically retrain with this new feature. Now you can see that my model is predicting perfectly for the examples I've labeled. Breaking the concept down and creating that extractor was a very effective way for me to improve my classifier. What I've just showed you represents about a day's worth of work for one person, starting with no labels and requires no deep ML knowledge. 
Now, I was initially quite allergic to this because I thought, well, remember, machine learning is not a blank slate, right? Every single machine learning model has inductive priors. Even the hierarchical organization of concepts in a deep neural network, you know, they're entangled together. That's an inductive prior. There's a, a fine balance between adding domain knowledge and bias into the model and removing the space of possibilities where we can, but also expanding the possibilities elsewhere. When people talk about machine teaching, I think they don't realize that almost all of the process of machine learning is machine teaching, right? Because when you select your data, when you do your featureization, when you select your loss function, when you do your hyperparameter optimization, absolutely everything is machine teaching. All you're doing is you're imbuing domain knowledge into the system and you're helping your machine learning model work better for this particular domain. There are no predictions without assumptions. There is this bias variance trade-off. The whole point of that is you imbue domain knowledge into your model so that where you can, you can reduce the space of possibilities so that you can reduce your dependency on data and you can improve the generalization of your model. So in short, um, Patrice Simhard uses machine teaching to formalize the process of creating data, models, and objectives to make the whole process more kind of closely resemble software engineering, right? The interesting thing is that the end user can also participate in this process, and more of the process is externalized, replicable, reproducible, scalable, and formalized. I think that, that was his vision with machine teaching. Now, when we move back to bonsai, they also use the term machine teaching, and I think they use it in a slightly looser way. And this was something that I got caught up on at the beginning, but they use machine teaching as part of the interface, the design interface of bonsai. And it means that you can create these hybrid predictive architectures and without needing to know anything about reinforcement learning, you can create these stepping stones or building blocks. You can create curriculums. You can define self-play scenarios. You can define imitation learning and reward densification. Because remember, the main challenges with reinforcement learning are the sparse reward and the deceptive search spaces and the sample efficiency problem and all of these things can be largely mitigated by creating this kind of knowledge and imbuing it into the system and they've created a domain specific language and a very clear interface to abstract away the complexity of doing that. This is for me at least kind of what for example deep learning is it's just you throw everything in there in the big black box and it will try out every possible <laughs> every possibility it can find and eventually it will find a path and it can be super useful if you ha really truly have no clue on where the right solution or the right answer lies but in this case like we should be able to give it some guidance and i think here it's a really interesting collaboration between machine teaching and machine learning so to say uh, to see how we can train this ball and train this machine most efficiently i find it very interesting that if we're placing all this emphasis on the teachers what about the ethical side of it? Because we're all humans, all humans have bias. And if we're placing this much trust in humans, like how are we dealing with the bias getting into the machine? And I think that's something that so far, at least in the papers I've read and the research that I've done into machine teaching hasn't been highlighted that much. Uh, but I do think it's something very important we should discuss as well. Software is the most malleable medium there is. With careful design, you can create abstractions with layers upon layers of capabilities that allow a creator to create any kind of an autonomous system. Today, if you look at how early autonomous systems are being attempted, they are super complex software stacks, typically siloed, built by a super team of experts, building a highly fragile and bespoke system. We know from experience 
that siloed systems constrain innovation. They are expensive in time and effort, and they don't produce building blocks that can be reused. Focusing on machine teaching, we are creating tools to capture human-taught expertise and to apply it to machines. What if your waste management company could program its machines to separate the garbage from the recycling so that you didn't have to? They won't need a PhD in AI or data science to do this. So anyway, um, I hope this introduction has given you a bit of a flavor for how hacky and unpredictable reinforcement learning is. So I must admit, when, when I first started playing with Bonsai, I almost had an allergic reaction because I thought, well, I'm an expert machine learning person. It's really kind of annoying that they've abstracted away all of the information behind an interface. Is this a good thing to do? Are, are they abstracting away too much information? It's very, very similar to, I don't know if any of you remember XAML which was the XML language to kind of bridge the gap conceptually. It created an interface between designers and developers that were working on Silverlight and Windows Presentation Foundation. And basically, it was an interface, right? Bonsai does a similar thing. It provides an interface for a consulting arrangement with Microsoft where the focus is on capturing domain expertise and abstracting away most of the complexity of deep reinforcement learning. The beauty of this interface is that they can hide away all of the technical information and they can innovate behind the interface. So the interface for any innovative company should be simple, accurate and well-defined. And once the interface has been designed, it gives Bonsai the ability to iterate quickly, frequently and efficiently. So just look at Uber, for example, right? They have a really simple interface, which is um, I want to go from A to B. And behind that interface, they can optimize the driver selection algorithm or the incentivization scheme or how they pay the drivers or the driver hailing experience. And this might actually be quite innovative for Bonsai because in the future, they could add all sorts of things behind the interface. They could add planning or model-based reinforcement learning, and we wouldn't even know about it. They could even add some of the more recent innovations in reinforcement learning, like the Go Explore paper, which was just released recently with, you know, Kloon and Stanley et al. And that was dealing with detachment and derailment in search problems. So without going into too much detail, it was if we find an interesting place in, in the um, search space, why don't we go back to that place and explore from there? And that only really works when you have a deterministic training environment. And of course, then you need to robustify your journey to get to that particular space and, and you can explore from that space. But, you know, then in test time, it can be a stochastic model. But that has now actually provided state of the art results on all of the 57 Atari games, you know, far exceeding human performance, even on Montezuma's Revenge. So Bonsai could be kind of implementing all of those new innovations. Maybe they could even go a step further and not just use reinforcement learning algorithms, but use things like population methods or some of the open-ended stuff that Kenneth Stanley's been doing. I think that's really interesting as well. In summary, Bonsai have created an information architecture or a rigid interface which creates an abstraction hiding away all of the technical details of the reinforcement learning. It externalizes and formalizes machine teaching and how we create domain knowledge and how we turn it into a software engineering process and how we run it in the cloud. This is Scott Stanfield from the Microsoft Autonomous Systems team. I've been really excited about taking concepts around AI and how do we reach out into the real world and make things better and improve existing physical systems. Let's see who can balance the ball the longest. Okay, this is a relatively simple skill and I, being a human, I've gotten pretty good at this. I'm using my binocular vision to look at the distance between the ball and the center and then moving my hands up and down. You get the idea, this is easy. It's actually 
quite challenging to do this on a machine. And I think that's what makes this very interesting. There's also um, a manual setting, and this Tim is using it right now, and this just shows you how difficult it is even for humans to keep the ball, I mean, on the plate, let alone uh, still in the center, which I think makes it even more impressive the fact that we can start teaching this machine how to do it by itself and learn by itself how to how to take control of the plate. <laughs> <laughs> So cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hard. Oh, hours and hours of fun. <laughs> so classic is the pre-programmed mode where it tries to keep the ball in the center uh, and keep it still. And you see like even the movements is make it so much more subtle than what you did, Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the key thing is that, I don't know if you've heard the expression, you shouldn't make knee jerk reactions. No, and that, I haven't and that's heard the, of that one. <laughs> it's an expression in the UK that you know, um, if 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 someone you know punches you in the stomach or something, you your your knee jerks out. You you make this mm. kind of jerky reaction, and that's the worst thing you should do. You should you should regularize or smooth. It's a similar thing with driving. You don't yank the steering wheel to the right hand no. side. You, <laughs> you feather it. You kind of make um, small movements to because otherwise you would crash. We use the word software engineering, but when I refer to engineers, I'm meaning now mechanical, electrical, chemical engineers. They have a technique called a PID controller. It's a proportional integral derivative controller with three magic numbers that are used to determine what gain is needed to reduce that distance over time in order to get this really amazing balancing experience. I, this is, it's fascinating. It works with nearly any object that's similar in the color, and it can pick up this obloid um, egg shape. PID controllers are really robust. And it's a good thing they're robust. They're using about 97% of mechanical systems today. But they're not approachable for someone like me. And frankly, for a lot of the people with simulators trying to solve industrial control problems, you can only go so far with a PID. Now, I have here the one and only clear Moab version. To show you what's inside before we go any farther, there is a single camera, a little Raspberry Pi 4 right here, connected to a custom power distribution with three servo arms and a fan and a whole bunch of magnets and twisted wires to pass FCC certification. So Bonzo is quite interesting. It's kind of like a halfway house between an expert system and a black box neural network. You can create these brains and you can compose together expert systems and rules and also learned concepts, as they're called. Uh, so a concept might be balancing a pole on a moving cart and you can compose this concept into a curriculum of lessons. You can plug a simulator in and then the curriculum can have goals, which can be to avoid things or drive things or minimize or maximize and, and reach certain things. So that's the kind of um, information architecture of Bonsai. And I think it makes quite an interesting interface, actually, because it abstracts away a lot of the complexity of reinforcement learning. Now, in their sales material, they say that it works for uh, dynamic, highly variable systems and that their brains can uh, adapt to a wide range of scenarios. And of course, that works on the assumption that you have a decent simulator for those scenarios. 
It also says that it works when you have competing optimization goals or strategies. Now, remember, the problem with deep learning is that it always overfits and it always takes shortcuts. So that assumes that you can actually create a kind of information architecture in your training routine such that it actually does what you want it to do. Uh, they also say that unknown starting or system conditions are supported. So brains can learn to handle unknown inputs or unknown changes to system behavior. And again, we, we must remind ourselves here that deep learning models are interpolators. They are not extrapolators. These models will not be able to do anything useful outside of the training range. So going on the assumption that you've explored this state space during training or you have some kind of an expert system which can actually generalize to this unknown input, then it will work. So I put together a kind of illustration here of the kind of thing that you might want to do with bonsai. Now remember when deep learning came around, what was really cool about it was that you could train these ubiquitous predictive architectures end to end. You know, it was just one big black box and even though there were specialisms in different parts of the neural network, you could do multiple tasks at once, you had this end-to-end -end architecture. And that was in stark contrast to some of the Kaggle competition winners where they would glue together all of these different expert systems and ensembles and models, and they would glue the output of one model into another model, and it, and it made it quite complex to understand. So Bonsai is somewhere in the middle. For the first time, they've created an interface and they've created a ubiquitous end-to-end -end system for building hybrid predictive and expert system architectures. So think of it as a bit like a workflow engine. But what's interesting here is that these models are being co-trained, which means they will have quite an esoteric dependency on each other. So you can no longer really do interpretability methods on these models in isolation. You have to start testing the entire system. So the extent to which this actually makes your models more understandable, I think, is in question. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, why are we decomposing a problem into a confection of expert system components and, and deep learning components? Well, I love this maze example. This is an example of a deceptive maze. And remember, any ambitious search problem has deception. And that means that you can't trust the gradient of your objective. If you monotonically optimize on your objective, you will reach a local minimum. So here, for example, if our objective or reward function was the distance to the target state, then we would get stuck in this local minima very, very quickly. So the interesting thing about most industrial control scenarios is that we have lots of expert process engineers and they actually know the structure of the maze. So we don't need to learn the structure of the maze. In fact, our system can be a little bit less intelligent because we can imbue domain knowledge into the system. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We are creating stepping stones or building blocks around the maze and then we can create a curriculum to basically work through the maze systematically because we already know the structure of the maze. So what we have here is a very interesting confection of learned concepts and expert systems. And these stepping stones, they could be deep learning models, deep reinforcement learning models, or expert systems. So I'm going to create a new brain, a control brain today. And I I always use the, the date and a letter. I think we're on G as in golf. We, we just have this workspace here. On the left-hand side, we have a list of the brains or controls that I've built earlier today. The default starting point for this uh, teaching parameters here, the language called Inkling, which I'll go over. And finally, the system on the right. Let me start the training right now. This takes a few minutes. So I've just kicked off the training. Train it to do what? Let's go back and look at the teaching protocol here. Give myself a little bit more space.
And as I'm scrolling through here, there's a few constants that we have in this language. We have the radius of the plate, which is uh, 22 centimeters. The first thing that, that indicates that this is something a little bit different, we have this state. Now, remember earlier, I said I could look at the plate and the ball and see where it is relative to the center of the X and Y position. I also can infer the velocity from the simulator. Now, the simulator also exposes two actions. I can change the pitch and the roll. And this corresponds to me moving the stick forward and backwards or left and right. And we've normalized these numbers. So the, the servo motors would normally be between, I think it's zero and 22 degrees. In this case, we made it easy by going between negative one and one. So far, we just set up the stage. We have a simulation called Moab, and it's tucked behind this page right here. And if I go down to the simulation, you're going to see this in a few minutes, but this is the total state that it's exposing. Now, this is a simulator that we built in TypeScript on the front end, and the back end is Python. Now, this is the one of our two main simulators that we use for teaching humans about teaching machines. And in this case, it's already deployed, and I have a few instances, it looks like 20, that are going to be running to and the background to teach the system. The goal is taking language and terms that are familiar to a subject matter expert ranging from, say, you're a chemical engineer. So we are training right now. We just got fired up. We have 20 sims connected in the background running about 180 iterations per second. Now, we're trying to satisfy our overall goal, which is a combination of the two sub goals. And if I scroll down, we have this lovely 3D view of the Moab simulator, the nice shiny. This is the special metal edition, I believe. We can see this one, this one instance of the 20 humming along at different iterations per second, feeding the brain on the back end. And that brain is learning what is the best action to take given a particular pair of ball X and Y positions. Should I roll left or roll? And so I'm gonna leave the velocity out, but you can see this sim is humming along. You, we would know this is really successful and had settled in once these two lines converge to zero. But you can see all these minute corrections. That's because this is an underactuated control problem. In fact, it's part of an undergraduate mechanical engineering class. And to solve this with a PID, it's a bit of work. Now, I have a brain I created literally, let's see, did this one just finish? I did this 33 minutes ago. Wow, we hit 100%. So let me stop training this one. What does make me wonder, though, is who is the target group for Bonsai? Because I think, as you said, I think it's very readable code if you know code and seen code before. But if I would show this to somebody who's not, who's never seen code or is not a programmer or has not worked with it, I can imagine this is pretty overwhelming. And it's also why I was asking, I think the graph makes a lot of sense to me. That's why I was wondering whether the graph is influencing the code or if the code is influencing the graph. I think we should be clear here that domain knowledge experts can also be engineers, right? If you're trying to make the perfect Cheeto, there's going to be some kind of Cheetos engineer, which know exactly how much air needs to be in there and stuff like that. So there's definitely a target group of domain experts where this would make a lot of sense. But I think for me, what, what kind of the power of the machine teaching concept is to me is how can we have domain experts which are not technical, which are not programmers, and how can we get their knowledge into algorithms without needing engineers or needing data scientists? We're trying to bring that technology up a level and allow non-AI experts, but really the people running the plants. My cousin runs a bread plant. He makes bread and it's an assembly line. And I ask him, what does he try to do with it every day? What's the goal? It's to 
It's a balance between throughput and efficiency every day. This one is incredibly robust. It has, it's very eager. It's like a German shepherd ready to play fetch. And not only can it balance it pretty aggressively, if I'm good, I can get it to play catch. Watch this. Oh, it stuck the landing. Oh man, I should have been on this camera. Look at that. So I have a special brain here. Try to show you something that would be very difficult to do with classic engineer controls. I have a special plate that one of our engineers journey drilled a hole into, thank you. When there's an obstacle in the plate, it doesn't, clearly the classic mode doesn't know that there's anything here. So if all of a sudden you have this system in the real world and something unusual has happened, you would have to go back and redesign the system. However, we can just add that to the scenario. The inkling is five lines longer. We've included a bit of code to tell it where this obstacle is in space. And now when I put a ball in here, if I roll it just right, it's gonna do everything it can to avoid this. I can go around the loop here and try to get it to touch that peg. And I can't quite get it. You might also ask yourself the question, well, why do we need a simulator at all? Well, the reason for that is that if we trained in the real world, we could damage the equipment, it could take unsafe actions, and just because of the prodigious amount of training data that we need, we're going to be reliant on simulators for the foreseeable future. But luckily, commercial simulators exist for many kind of industrial control problems. I could upload any existing sim that you might have, so you can bring your own for sure, you name it, tell it how many instances you want, as long as you're adhering to our SDK, which is state what actions can you perform, and what some other configuration information. And for you, because you hadn't seen Inkling before, was this what you expected of it? Mm, not really, this, this is very declarative, which means it's the what, not the how. So this is, this is just describing this kind of state diagram over here, or this concept diagram. And it's not telling you anything about how things work. It's just telling you about how things are related yeah. and what is going on. It's showing you a schematic representation of the kind of state space and what the properties are and what the valid ranges are. So I suppose what surprises me is that I'm just thinking, what is, is, is this it? Can I just press the train button now and it will just work? Well, we can try. And as if by magic, it just feels like this is too easy. I think we should also ask ourselves what would happen if we would have to build this from scratch and you know, the inkling language wouldn't be in there and we would be the ones having to figure out how to do this. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast. Today, I'm here with Scott Stanfield. Scott, say hello. Hey, good morning or good evening. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, Scott, you work for Microsoft, don't you? Yes. What do you do at Microsoft? Yes, I, I am a, uh, I'm a member of this uh, new this team called Project Bonsai, and we're part of the uh, research group that's taking machine learning or machine teaching out into uh, to our customers in this industrial autonomy scenario. So I I am on the I run the advocacy team for Project Bonsai, and I get to talk to customers and engineers about this new technique of using autonomy in places where we've automated machinery to do things. Okay, that's really interesting. Let's start with machine teaching because this is the this is the thing that really interests me. Now, um, I was yeah. on an internal conference when I worked at uh, Microsoft, and there was a guy called Patrice Simhard, and he mm -hmm. gave us a, a demonstration all about machine teaching. And I, and I must admit, it was one of the things that I thought was extremely esoteric. I didn't understand what the hell it was, 
And I've done a little bit of reading recently, and I think I understand what it is, but I still don't completely understand how it relates to bonsai. So my, my quick reading of what machine teaching is, is as follows. Machine learning algorithms, what they essentially do is you feed them data, and they are inductive algorithms, which means you give them examples of something and they turn those examples into rules. And most of the machine learning algorithms are extremely sample inefficient, which means you need to give them loads and loads of data. And, and most of the data you give them is kind of redundant. It's actually possible to put a controller on the top. We'll call that a machine teaching controller. It's I think it's supposed to be an interactive process, but maybe it's a non-interactive process yes. as well. And this controller can give the most salient data to the machine learning algorithm such that it learns what you want it to learn quicker. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, in a way, you're using human experience to guide the priors. Um, if you were to teach, well, let me use American metaphor, but teach, because I don't know how you would teach someone to ever hit a ball in cricket. So I'm going to use an American baseball metaphor where you put a ball. I had, a, I had a, have a son. He grew up playing baseball. And if you watch professional baseball, the ball is being thrown to the batter up to 100 miles an hour. So you don't teach them by giving them examples of major league hitters in a supervised learning way and say, just get up and do that. I'm going to give you a thousand examples. This is what success looks like. Instead, you build a lesson. You start small. You teach them how to hit a stationary ball first. Then you would add to it. You take the ball off the tee and you underhand soft toss it so they get a parabolic arc and they're learning how to swing down to it. So you're building up skills. Now, there, there's a direct analog in how we would teach machines. There's so much about machine learning in our literature. Um, I started with simple perceptrons with no background, like a one-layer perceptron in the 80s, and then moved to... Uh, I tried support vector machines, so that almost killed me. Um, and then I found the beauty of gradient-boosted trees. But all of this is focused on the learner, the machine learner. Now we're focused on machine teaching, so it's bringing a certain pedagogy to this effort where we're focused on taking a human expert that maybe have 30 years in the field to know how to debug um, part of an assembly process or like take Cheetos. So PepsiCo owns Frito-Lay and they make Cheetos in the United States, which is that little crunchy snack food. I assume your readers know what this thing is. Um, there are so many variables that go into the production of it that you need a multi-decade tenured uh, operator, plant operator, to know what to do when something, quote, goes wrong. And the goes wrong can be subtle. And it could be like the, the puffs aren't popping or the there's too much ambient humidity if they're made in, say, Houston and it's really warm and, and humid. Um, maybe there's too much latent moisture in the cornmeal batter mix. And so we have heuristics as humans to make these small, small changes. But if you can codify in a very high-level language called inkling, the human best practices or the lesson plan or the goals that you want a system to learn to reach, then that coupled with a simulation allows us to teach machines to do what we want. Okay. So just to unpack that a little bit, because this is really interesting. So that there is, um, there's a concept in machine learning called curriculum learning. It's a little bit different to what we were saying before. So it, it usually isn't meant to mean data. It's meant to mean objectives. An example of this is in reinforcement learning, you might need to have an agent solve a maze. And mm -hmm. the problem is all, all search problems have deception. 
And what that means is that your objective, if you follow it monotonically, you'll get in, you'll get stuck in the maze, right? Because you'll be trying to increase your, you know, this this objective, which is the distance to the end of the maze, and you'll get stuck. And that's why there are things like epsilon greedy and even yes. population yes. methods. There's, there's a whole bunch of ways to, to get around this problem. But what you're talking yeah. about is sometimes if we know the structure of the maze, we can do something called reward shaping. And that's mm -hmm. where we mm -hmm. can set intermediate stepping stones to guide the that's agent right. around the maze. And by the, it sounds like that's what you're describing. So you're saying we, we, we understand yes, what the curriculum is in advance. So let's, let's help the machine learning algorithm find its way through the maze by giving it those stepping stones. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to explain it. Um, I have uh, a visual here. Well, I have Project Moab, which is a balance, ball balance robot that we use to illustrate these, these principles. I've got one too. I have, I have several. Yes, we need to go through yours. This is my Frankenstein bot. You know, I take it apart. I have an arm sticking out and a logic analyzer because I'm currently trying to rebuild the uh, spy bus interface. But this one is a little bit cleaner. And if I take if I take this off and for for your audience here, um, the the conceit here is that that while this is an easy task for a human to balance a ball on a plate. It's a, um, it's a it's not college level. Yeah, I know, right? I have some experience. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. it's much harder to to build a robot to do the same. And mechanical engineers would recognize this as a ball on plate problem. And it's something that is well known. You can solve it with a PID controller. Now we've shifted the problem. We shifted the problem to gains for the. The, the p term the you know the, the we shifted the problem to knowing the gains for the integral the derivative and the proportional term in both x and y axes inverse kinematics blah 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 um and so we can do that with this and we we do we have a classic controller mode for pid um but we also have a mode where you have no prior knowledge of how this world works and you just train it using a simulator in azure and it just through through an informed trial and error it will figure out the best policy to keep the ball balanced. Now, um, we use that as a stepping stone then to meet what a PID can do, but go beyond it. And so we're coming up with scenarios like, what if you have a laser pointer and you shine it on the plate? Not only can it balance it, but we can have the ball follow the laser pointer, something you could not do readily with classic controllers, where you can bring in sensors from the outside. Uh, but going back to building up a lesson plan, I was literally doing this before. When we teach the system, I tell it to first drop the ball on the plate randomly in the simulator, somewhere between the radius and 50% of the radius, not out here. Start it like kind of close. And then I also say the initial velocity of the ball is relatively slow. Because later, if I wanted to solve you know, a fast moving ball problem, I can build I can build upon the knowledge of it's, it's learned, the policy it's learned uh, when the ball is moving more slowly. So I'll just pop this back on. Let, let's introduce a couple of concepts. So reinforcement learning, because you said a controller, right? And a controller is, it's something that takes action in an environment at yes. a certain point in time, right? So it, it's, mm -hmm. it's actually really, really difficult using code because you were talking about, you know, this PID control. If you were to write code, if you were to write some Java and tell it to move that plate, right, um, as a function of time, you probably wouldn't do a very good job of it. It's very, very difficult no. to write that kind of code, 
right? Yes, but, it is. But what you can do is you can write a physical simulation, right? So you can do your Euler integration or RK4 integration, and you can model all of your uh, your, your forces and so on. And you, you mm -hmm. can build a simulator so you can say, okay, well, what would happen if I dropped the ball in from here and from here and from here? So right. what reinforcement learning does is it, it takes that simulator and then you train with lots of different episodes and then it, 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 you have an objective function. So you say, mm -hmm. this is what I want to happen. And then it will tell you what the, what the best next action is at that, at that point in time for you to meet your objective. Yes, yes. You know, it's funny, you, you, you've kind of touched, we've touched on the three common personas, the three different perspectives to look at this. One is through the eyes of the, the data scientists and they'll tend to ask, is this using PPO or actor A3C? Um, the answer is yes, depending if it's a real valued output or, or a categorical output. Um, an engineer might look at and say, um, can it use my MATLAB simulator? I've done all the inverse kinematics in, in Simulink or AnyLogic. And the answer is yes. Um, a programmer might look at it like what you said, because I ask them, how would you do this? And they very quickly you start to you start to break it down to these discrete time steps, but knowing how to carry the errors forward and minimize the over time. And as I am a programmer, and I never knew what a PID control loop was. And so um, there's lots of different ways, a lot of different perspectives to approach this. But because at the end of the day, our source of data is the real world and simulators, we gravitate towards industry specific problems that have a a base of simulations. So you know, the biggest would be um, math MathWorks company with Simulink, but there's it's a very long tail of simulations. There are very specific industry simulation problems, and if there isn't a simulation built, we're looking at ways to derive uh, some of the physical properties of the world from from analyzing the data itself. So there's it's a big space, but trying to Trying to make something that that makes sense and actually works is it's difficult controlling physical things because you have lag, you have sensor lag, you have noise, you have discontinuity. Like we're literally debugging a problem right now where I have infinite velocity because at some point the ball it doesn't even see the ball and then I introduce the ball, not velocity, acceleration. So acceleration for one tick is just off the charts. So we have to throw a filter that out, and so we still yeah. you know it's it's a process many systems that we're modeling have very complex dynamics and it, yeah. it's increasingly difficult to describe them I mean, it's easier to write a simulator than a controller but you know it, it, it that's accentuated when you have a system of complex dynamics but just to frame this a little bit though we are talking about model free reinforcement learning so we're talking about the space of problems where you can write a simulator i would imagine that there will be a class of problems where uh, you can't write a simulator mm -hmm. and the, the other thing that comes to my mind is um there are problems with with machine learning algorithms in general around robustness and generalization so yes it's entirely possible that the system that you're modeling might be non-stationary and it might be quite chaotic and it might mean that the the policy that we have learned today might not work tomorrow so i would imagine there are industrial processes that are quite um uh, regular and stationary which you could use uh, this product for and right. maybe other right. things that you couldn't use it for yeah the I think the idea is, um, and, and very different from the ongoing field for, you know, people look at, might come in from the outside and say, oh, it's like a Tesla, you know, using the autopilot or features. And, and then you look in the world of autonomy, just in automobiles and how SAE has like the, the goal of level five autonomy. We're not talking about that. We're talking about um, more controlled industrial solutions that, that do need some 
respond to some some unknown space. So you get the simulation close enough in a, in a hyperdimensional sphere, and you get it close. But the idea is that you, in the simulation, you can kind of push the boundaries, like a, have the, a coverage, so the the policy has been exposed to a broader a broader world of what the possible outcomes would be. And like in our case, we, you know, we're only balancing ping pong balls. I don't really. I haven't pushed it to change the mass of the ball. It is a sphere, and spheres work differently from solid balls. Um, so the, the shell velocity calculations are different. We don't really care. So I haven't really pushed the boundaries on the weight of the ball. But it does generalize. Like we've balanced a hard-boiled egg on it. And, and so there's some cases where the physics will just work and other cases where, okay, now we want to train it for a, broad, a broader spectrum to have more robustness. Deep learning models are in the space of curve fitting essentially so if you have a problem where you can interpolate between two known points during training then then it will extrapolate to a certain extent but if it's a problem where um the middle point between two examples shown during training it, it bears no resemblance then then we're a bit stuck I, I suppose what we're getting to here is what why use bonsai and, and the reason for that is what we're doing is, is we're formalizing a process around how we train and how we use these things to overcome some of these landmines and to overcome the sample efficiency problem and some of the challenges that people traditionally have with reinforcement learning. Yes, yes. And I, I think the we're, we're finding that um, like the world of simulation, which is where our data comes from, uh, these systems, we're bringing the ISVs, the solution providers along with us to help prepare their simulation software to work in the cloud as well. So we can dockerize the uh, the application, the executable, um, and we can work with the vendor to make their software kind of ready to be run in the cloud. It's it's not only a technical problem, but it's also a licensing problem. And so you look at the way a lot of these big heavy-duty scientific simulation packages work, they might be licensed on a per seat, uh, like for one user, maybe one eight-core machine, but we can run a thousand simulations in the cloud and orchestrate the learnings between all of them at the same time. And we can even spin them up in such a way that it will bring on more simulations if it feels like it can keep up with the, it can have a dynamic load, a dynamic simulation load, if you will. And I found that with, with just with Moab, Moab is a very simple simulation. Um, and we find, we see that the, the engine itself is uh, responsible for, for bringing them up you know, dynamically. It's, it's really cool. And as it as our software backing gets better, I find it only needs just a handful of simulators because it can run more quickly, more more sample efficiency. Amazing. So so on 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 this um, training process, for example, because I've, I've logged into Bonsai and, and had a play with it, and it, it's great fun. Of course, that there's a lot of complexity there that's been abstracted away because essentially it's yeah. a it's a it's a SaaS almost where you can just spin yeah. up and and virtualize yeah. all of the compute. But um, you, you, I'm trying to understand exactly how this machine teaching thing comes in. When you train these things, what you're doing is you have a simulator and you run lots of different episodes and you're, you're training an agent basically and it's kind of um, traversing or t taking trajectories through this simulator. And right. I thought maybe the machine teaching part of it might be that you're kind of um, making this process a little bit more interactive. So you're either imbuing uh, ways of making this more efficient or or maybe you're exploring the state space dynamically so you're sort of saying okay well i understand what that part of the state space is i, I now need to like explore parts of the state space that i haven't been to already and coming up with ways to kind of make that yeah, training process yeah. more efficient that, that's a that's a really good insight 
let me give you, by the way, of, an, of another example. When we um, when we were developing the simulation for this, first we one of the ways to approach to we call it like uh, brain spotting, like train spotting, but brain spotting. Like, is this a is is this problem space something that can be solved with machine teaching? So we have some heuristics. In fact, our customers and our internal solution excel uh, the people that do um, analysis go through some internal training to help decompose a problem but it works something like this what is the how do we infer the state of the system at any given time so there's what do i know about it and then what actions can i inflict and how fast should i make decisions and what should i be driving towards do i want to maximize a number minimize some value um, drive towards some goal but keep it within some epsilon area in, in the case of the ball um, and so we think of it as reward shaping. You have a terminal reward function, but we also have this higher level goal satisfaction. So you can have multiple goals that you're trying to achieve. In my case, there's two, avoid falling off the plate and drive the ball to the middle. And those are each defined with one line of code. Um, and then the outer bits that the machine teacher do, like our simulation for this exposes a lot of pieces, a lot of uh, variables that we run at say 30 Hertz. But I know most about reading what, how other people have solved this particular problem is all you really care about is the X and X dot property, the position of the ball and the velocity of the ball. So four numbers in this case, and the X and Y position and the velocity in both. So there's four inputs. And then the only thing that the brain can do in this case is pitch the joystick forward and back or left and right. So I'm mapping four numbers into two real valued numbers between negative one and one. But so I, as the teacher, kind of know this. Like I like that's I want to glue these things together, and I'll know if it's successful if the ball stays on the plate. So I want to reward it for um, how long it stays in the middle. And I could have also just as easily bypassed the inverse kinematics instead of trying to control the pitch and roll. Instead, I would say control the position of the three motors. So I have a completely different interface where I, I know because I built this, but the, the servos go from 90, wait, 155 degrees to 90. It's kind of a weird, I should have normalized it from zero to 90, but I know that's where all three go. And trying to convert a human's joystick to three motors is a kinematics problem. Not easy, by the way. That's a great example though, because this is what machine learning does for us, right? So um, th there is a functional mapping to go from the motors of those arms to the pitch and the roll. And yes. we could let the machine learning algorithm learn that for us. And, and frankly, it might not be as clean as this, as it, it's gonna have some slop, right? It's, it might not be the, the perfect, because it's a fairly low dimensional space that, that's solved well by people that know mechanical engineering. It is a 13 page research paper. I mean, it's not <laughs> trivial, you know, you, you have to brush off your PDs and, or ODs. And I'm like, okay, this just wasn't my, my bag. I, I appreciate it. Um, in fact, it was an interview question for one of the folks that are on my team. She's a mechanical engineer nice. in robotics and, and she actually improved the paper. Um, but it's, it's, it's an example of even a small toy problem like this is worthy of exploration in this space and is a and can be approached by from a machine learning hat electrical engineering mechanical engineering and computer science and that really is it's kind of it's the form of mechatronics 
It's just now we have this small kit for our customers and partners to dive into to start to explore this space. So even though we focus on mechatronics, frankly, the reason I did this is because like chemical engineering in movement of fluids between tanks using a pump academically is interesting. Visually, it's not terribly interesting. <laughs> like the two, there's a classic problem called the two tank or the four tank problem. The two tank problem, you have two, two vertical cylinders of fluid. You have one pump that you fill the top one that's draining at a consistent rate into the bottom one. And your goal is to keep this level of fluid consistent. Actually, it seems like kind of a fun pub game. Like you could put, put a coin in and you get to turn the pump and whoever keeps the level there the longest wins. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should make this like something that you can play with that build when we all get back together. Definitely. Um, but that's a real, that's an analog of a real physical problem. Um, that when you multiply this out by multiple tanks, multiple, it starts to get to be a very hairy control problem. And that's where augmenting humans in these decisions uh, can be really useful. Because I'm, I'm trying to draw a contrast to traditional reinforcement learning. So e even with this project Moab, which is the thing with the plate and the ping pong ball, someone's written a simulator somewhere. And then yeah. there's a kind of interface, there's, there's an interface language for, for describing all of the physical uh, parameters of, of that simulation. Right. And, and then you can um, build this model and, and you define the objectives. And, and again, this is, this is quite declarative. So you, can, you said yourself, yes. um, the ball needs to be as close to the center as possible and it shouldn't fall mm -hmm. off. And that seems like a bit of a, a divergence because in traditional reinforcement learning, you just have one, one value, like a reward basically. And mm -hmm. you would have to come up with some contrived combination of those objectives right. and you would have to That's learn right. some trade-off. Whereas what I'm seeing in Bonsai is that we're, we're almost em embracing the ambiguity to a certain extent. So mm -hmm. we're saying, look, we've got, we've got this objective. Maybe I want to maximize my throughput or something. And then I've got, I've got this thing down here. I want to maximize my, uh, my overall latency okay. or performance. And you kind of describe this in what looks like a computational graph. So yes, is, is, is that, graph, is that yeah. how you're imbuing knowledge into the system? Is, is that what you mean yeah, by absolutely. machine teaching? Yes. And I, I think what this is doing is starting to empower the engineers that are making the simulations in the first place that would allow the data scientists and engineers and classic engineers that are that know how the physical system work to combine their knowledge to build a system. And I, I think it's um, we're really just at the beginning. Uh, just last Monday, we had a series of announcements, um, one for Bell Flight and how we're helping them do autonomous landings. And another piece on the the the, the Frito Lay um, Cheetos example, and so we I can give you some links at the end that you can throw in if people want to go learn more. I have a an eight minute video start to to finish of how Moab works. Um, all the source code for this is available as a sample to understand Project Bonsai, and so we have a lot of a lot of resources coming. I want more examples. I want. Um, it's, it's, it's so interesting that this approach can be used across so many different industries. It does, again, it's like complexity is always in the system. Like you can't, there's some law of like entropy. You can't minimize complexity. You can only shift it around. The complexity is already there in these simulations that exist already. It's just an optimal policy might not have been found yet. So using RL to find that, um, Reinforcement learning itself is necessary, but not sufficient. We also need, and we have the technology to take the source of data, the simulation, and scale it 
pretty effortlessly in the cloud and wrap the whole thing in something that can be run in Azure. And then finally, trying to put a, a surface around it using inkling to allow a subject matter expert to define what the system should do. I think it's those three things that make it all work and come together. Okay, that, that makes sense because I was looking for you to kind of articulate what the the core proposition was because um, I must admit that when when I first looked at Bonsai, I thought it was really cool, and I love the fact that it's it's a completely democratized user experience, and I can go in there and I could I can um, yeah. you know, learn the brain, and it even shows me look, right. it's running on all these virtual machines, and you can even visualize the runs as they're happening, and you can see the ping mm -hmm. pong ball mm -hmm. going in, and you can see it learning yeah. the policy, and you can see that the graph of of the loss over time and how good the policy is, mm -hmm. it, you know mm -hmm. it, that that's really really cool. But I was also thinking in the back of my mind that there's still um in this particular case you've done a lot for me so you you've already created this this uh, 3d model of the project moab and you've created the simulator right. and you've done a, bu a bunch of stuff for me and how much harder would it have been for me to kind of start from scratch i suppose what i'm saying is that is bonsai basically a, a consulting play and I, I don't know whether you want it to be a consulting play or whether actually you're bootstrapping an even more exciting uh, product in the future and it's just going to take a while to get there I think it's going to take a while to get there. This is this is a pretty long play. Um, to answer the simulation question, we one of our engineers built this nice looking JavaScript, um, you know, TypeScript system to do the 3D animation, and being that person's first simulation took like two or three months. At the same time, well, a little bit later, but in parallel, we asked the folks at Simulink to do the same. They built it in three days. And they said they would have gone faster, but the person on their their team that knew that knew Simulink really well was not available. So all they wow. needed was the motor specs. So they wanted the the bill of materials. They wanted the CAD diagram so they could infer the linkages, and they were able to build um, a working model in Simulink in a few days because that's what they do, right? That's there. That's why there's a space of simulations. Like we just, you know, to make this approachable, we wanted to have the source code available, but. Uh, really, it's kind of an on-ramp. Uh, it exposes the developer community to the need for simulation, but hopefully we're showing that the simulation doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be close. And we find that when we over-engineer, like there's no mechanics in here about ball plate separation. We don't model that. We assume it always sticks to the plate. And I think it, we're not we're not accounting for any kind of friction, coefficient of friction in the, in the model. We're not doing... The fancy, like imagine a billiards table when you hit the ball underneath and you have a backwards rolling until it changes forward. You could do that. We don't need to. It works fine. It will balance it just fine. So we've been talking the whole time. I never actually did I actually show it balanced. Well, we, we've already recorded some stuff showing it, but feel free to show it again. Good because mine rarely is working because I'm always testing it. Like this is my. This is my this is my developer bot, so it's always in bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a thing of beauty. So I'm just I'm trying to so this machine teaching thing then the way I explained at the beginning that makes perfect sense. So give give the learner the most salient information to to learn what you want to learn as quickly as possible. But in right. I'm just trying to think. So on on this bonsai example with Project Moab, it, what exactly is the machine teaching component? If you, if you think of machine teaching as the whole exercise, which is starting with a known simulator, exposing the salient parts, the sensors, the actuators, uh, and then defining the language, like, like right now, the, you know, our goal is to get the ball to bounce in the middle, but I could just as easily 
um, tell it, instead of in the middle, trace a circle uh, with a different kind of reward function. And, and I may, you know, I may need to do reward or terminal a reward. It's called reward shaping that you mentioned earlier. I could do that. Um, so the, the teaching part is the expression of some goal or the breakdown of smaller lesson, like a lesson plan. First learn this. And then with that brain, learn another, you know, extend the functionality so you don't have to go relearn a task. So right now my lesson assumes a very um, like slow moving ball to, to give it kind of a fighting chance. And then I can build on top of that knowledge to introduce a, a bigger variety of parameters. And then once I get the balance piece together, then I can control it from another brain to get it to maybe navigate a path or something. I see that that makes sense. So the it, it, I suppose you're, you're meaning machine teaching as curriculum learning. So creating, um, yes, I, I'm not sure whether intermediate objectives is the right thing or, or additional objective. Is it, is it like parallel objectives or is it intermediate objectives? I think both. I think both. Yeah. So intermediate objectives to slowly build up the knowledge. If we go back to the baseball idea, if I just chuck the ball at you and you're trying to hit it with a broomstick, it's going to be really difficult. So let's decompose that into two tasks. First, learn how to hit a stationary ball with a moving bat. And then once you, which by the way, is very hard and very humbling. If you watch, I'm sure there's YouTube videos of, of big guys, of, you know, a weekend baseballer just walking up to try to hit a ball that's an, on a stationary tee. It's a humbling experience because I know I'm one of those. So first master that skill, then you add to it. So that's a that's an incremental approach. And then a parallel approach might be, um, we have this lunar lander example. It's the classic video game, which you've probably seen in OpenAI Gym, where you have a simul you want to land a little spacecraft on the moon, and you have um, a policy to move left and right to stay within the flags, but you also have um, this parabolic, you know, you have gravity to worry about, and you want to start braking at the bottom, and then you have to cut the engines out. So you could model that as three different um, uh, brains that you could control all at once um, or try to achieve them both at the same time. The, there's something called an acrobat, which is similar to the inverted pendulum, where if you balance, if you balance like a broom on the end of your hand, that's an inverted pendulum. But if you start with it on a, a swing and you want to swing it up, there's an energy minimization technique you can do. And once you have it upright, then you switch into a balancing mode. And we have a little yeah. robot. It's just on the other side of the room from a company called Kwanzer. And they sell this beautiful little cube that spins it and stands up. And you can control it with Simulink. You can control it uh, using classical classic engineering. Um, one of our engineers has taught it with OpenAI Gym, built an environment for it, built a simulation for it. And then we can also solve it with uh, Bonsai as well. And it's, it's another example of, of multiple ways to approach it. And what I found interesting is that when we, we told it to stand up as quickly as possible, that the energy minimization swinging back and forth only took three tries. It was one, two, up. Except at the top, it shook a little bit. Whereas the classic PID approach um, took its time. It took seven to eight swings, but when it stood up, it, stood up, it was perfect. Yeah. And I found it interesting because the emergent behavior from the brain, we just told it to stand up as quickly as you can. And so it made it, it achieved that goal. But then what we would do through either reward shaping or in this case with brains, have a new training. Okay, now that you've done this, that's close. Good job. 
but I'm not exactly done. Now that you've stood up, minimize this, this vibrational problem. Yeah. Now, if you're an engineer, you know you, you need to tune is it the I term to the I term or the D term. I forget. <laughs> and a PID controller. I always get them backwards. Um, so th this would be, to answer your question, yes, both parallel and and uh, additive, I guess. Okay. This makes a lot of sense, actually. So you're saying that, you know, to perform um, a particular task, you can decompose it into skills. It's very similar to the maze example I gave before. So that the overall mm -hmm. task will be to get to the end of the maze. But um, mazes have deception, which means you need to have a curriculum of intermediate skills or stepping stones to get there. Um, yeah. It's a little yeah. bit like saying, uh, you know, if, if I want to have a computer vision classifier that classifies me holding a tennis ball, what I might do is, is create two intermediate stepping stones. So uh, a classifier that recognizes me, a classifier that recognizes a tennis ball, and then I might use yeah. those as two inputs to another classifier that's going to very quickly learn, you know, Tim with a tennis ball as opposed to something else. So you're kind of creating a curriculum of, of tasks. But in Bonsai, you, you can represent this curriculum declaratively. It's how you imbue the knowledge into the That's system. right. In the, in the graph, in, the, in the, the graph interface. Of course, it's funny you keep talking about the maze because I, it was just the anniversary or something popped up recently about Claude Shannon showing his little elect, a little mouse solving a maze back in the, what, 50s, late 50s? And I guess, you know, they had perfect information. Um, it's, it's fascinating that we're still, things that were discovered in the 50s, the, um, what, what do you call the box? The Skinner box, B.F. Skinner created something called the Skinner box and later called it a teaching machine. And it was behavioral theory, what we now call positive reinforcement. And it really was around the whole idea of putting a rat in a box and rewarding it with a food pellet for doing the right task. And so this, this concept has been around for 70 years now, and we're, we're still making iterative approaches. Um, I think the computational problem has always been there, especially for large complex systems. And because there's so much human knowledge locked up in these simulators with maybe suboptimal control systems, but the mechanical, the mechanical physics are there um, in order to respond to changing business conditions. You can take that simulation and move it. Um, we'll give you another example. Um, there's a steel company that uh, a large Amer uh, industrial steel foundry that makes galvanized steel. And the way you make galvanized steel is through a process called hot dip galvanization. And you run the, the, the thin steel through a hot bath of molten zinc. And the zinc, you need to deposit around two to three microns of zinc to make it rust proof. And if you don't put enough on it, then it's going to rust and you've completely ruined the product. If you put too much rust on it, then you've wasted zinc. I'm sorry, if you put too much zinc on it. Um, and so it's a balance between two, two extremes. Like there's, there's this happy number, but because they can't precisely control it or they don't, they tend to put too much zinc on the steel and they realized with machine teaching and a simulation, they can, depending on the order that the customer has, they can very finely tune the amount of zinc that's deposited, saving a lot of money. Like we can't talk about the numbers yet, but it was astonishing to me not knowing. Yeah. And then I went and watched about four hours of YouTube video on how seal works and galvanized steel and hot zinc, uh, <laughs> bath dipping. And so you've, so my YouTube playlist is really strange. 
It's like, you also might like this. And so all of a sudden I'm like reading these papers on, on zinc and how it works with steel. Yeah. It's kind of cool. No, it, it, it makes perfect sense because, because we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, industrial process optimization and, and at, at scale and at volume, even a couple of percentage points could translate to potentially millions of dollars. So that there, there, definitely there, there's a reason to do that. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, there might be a safety problem because now we're trusting these black box models and deep learning models that they, they do have a robustness problem, which means that if, if, if you show them things they weren't trained on, yeah. they, they do weird stuff. And, and I think the, the extent to which yeah. that is a problem depends on the dynamics of the system. But yeah, uh, sure. But at the yes. end of the day, you can't argue with the fact that in, in increasing the, the efficiency of your industrial process could save you millions and millions of dollars. Not to mention the fact that some of these longtime operators that really know the system might be retiring or we need a way to codify their knowledge to help train the next generation as to what to do. And it doesn't have to be the thing that this brain that we talk about can't. I think the word autonomy, I think we're almost missing a term. And I think Patrice Samard was onto something and we talk about it, but it's, it's really, it's guiding human behavior, guiding human decisions that can be informed by the computer's trial and error experience. And so in situations where you have to have a high frequency response, maybe we do let the, you know, it, I can't generalize because it's always going to be a very specific case um, as to how much of this is advisory control versus outright autonomy. Um, you know, just like landing a plane with autopilot, you know, the pilot still has their hands on the stick. And so at any given time can pull it away. But um, I think through training and simulation for both human and machine, that's how we get to get to this process. And uh, just to have another tool in the bag is is fascinating and, and yeah. we're, we're gonna have more and more uh case studies every six months or so you know as we as we have new success with our customers and can talk about it we'll inspire future engineers and data scientists like yourself to maybe take another look at this and see if it's something applicable to their space yeah no i, I think it, it's a really exciting product and at the end of the day that there are so many exciting ideas around machine learning I'm, I'm interested in open-endedness for example we spoke to kenneth stanley the other week and imagine just building um a SaaS product that would you know that would abstract it sufficiently so that people can use this paradigm of of, of machine learning um but one one thing i'll say is that i, I think um this style of, of um, machine learning works really well. So this curriculum learning works really well when you know what the intermediate stepping stones are. That there are problems, for example, how do we solve AGI? You know, there, there, there are ambitious problems where we don't know what right. the intermediate stepping stones are, but we're on this interesting continuum where, you know, we had expert systems in the 1980s and that this was a world where we, we, knew, we knew what the rules were and we thought that if we could just, you know, codify everything and build programs, yeah. then we would yeah. be able to solve AI and, and build any system we want. But, you know, those systems were actually really brittle. So then we did the opposite end of the spectrum and we had machine learning, which, you know, we thought we could be entirely Entirely data driven and just trust the algorithms to do everything. That didn't work very well either. And now we're meeting in the middle. Where we have the perfect yeah. combination of some learning where we can have learning, but also we imbue a lot of knowledge into these systems as well. Right. That's a really good, that's a good take on this. Also, we don't have to wait. Like we don't have to wait for AGI. We don't have to, like these are systems, you know, we have customers that are putting it in pilot plants right now. And, um, you know, using it as a, as a means to get their staff trained up. And they work with uh, either our partners or, or our members of the Project Bonsai team. And we have, we have 
PhD consultants in different backgrounds, uh, from material science to uh, chemical engineering, mechanical, electrical, or earth, uh, ge geophysical sciences, that are uh, using on staff that are, are are working with our customers and really trying to find some of the patterns that we can put into practice into the software. And so I think you're going to see more. Um, uh, we we have a lot more coming. It, this is a very challenging space, and I think the relationship with the simulation vendors um, and also helping people that don't have a simulation at all find a way to, it's just, it doesn't have to be a blocker. Well, Scott Stanfield, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Okay, we're all here together. Kilcher, meet Meg. Hello, Meg. Dr. Hello. Meet Meg. <laughs> thank you. So the first thing I want to show you guys is this orange ball. What do you think this is? Your lunch. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so this thing has got a manual mode, right? I'm going to put it in manual mode. Let's see if my policy is as good as the one built into the brain. There's a little joystick on the front of it. Oh dear. <laughs> For some reason I can't do it. No, it's too difficult. You gotta, you gotta relax, man. Relax. You're too, uh, too stressed there. You gotta, gotta go with the flow. Get in your Zen space. Then you can do it. It's a bit unfair though, right? Like if you if you took a plate and tried to balance the ball, you could you could do it. I could. Yeah, in fact, you could balance it precisely in the center, and it Should would barely it. move. Maybe it just has really bad coordination, guys. You don't know. <laughs> well, he he was he he did play a lot of squash, so. Well, that's not fair because the plate has a lip. Talking about, <laughs> but I think this is this is kind of uh, like we can all agree it's a it's a hard machine learning problem. Yes. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I okay. mean, it it depends on. It is an easy machine learning problem if you just write the controller. Like, you can reduce the machine learning component to simply recognizing orange pixels, right? And once you recognize the orange pixel, you can just in like build a classic controller for keeping the ball in the middle. It, I guess the the question is, is this policy a learned policy or is the machine learning simply reduced to recognizing where the ball is? It's a it's a learned policy. And okay. that's where this machine teaching thing comes into it. So mm -hmm. first of all, the interesting thing with model-free reinforcement learning is that you can explicitly code the simulator. And then you have some kind of training protocol where you have episodes with a certain number of iterations inside the simulator. And usually there is some kind of um, starting state which you just randomly initialize and you set some parameter boundaries and you randomly or uniformly sample from, uh, fr from that state space. You run the simulation and you see what happens and then you optimize against some reward function. Yeah, so can we back up and, and define what we mean by model free M model free means that you um you have a simulator of the world which is explicitly programmed and 
because in, in, okay. so that's that's a model of the yeah, world because in reinforcement learning you can have many different architectures and one architecture is you can have a, a further level of abstraction where you actually have a model of the world as well well the simulator is a model of the world well the simulator uh, all, like just for our in the rl perspective whether or not you have a simulator has nothing to do with whether or not it's model free or model based rl so the specification okay. is, is actually just uh in as tim says in model based rl you do have an internal model of the world um that is not learned okay. that is actually programmed hard coded in some way so chess you can you can have like an internal simulator right in the rl algorithm and then okay. you can so they're just dividing yeah the, you, you can do model based discourse. with a learned model and so on model free rl is simply when in its most basic form it's either q learning or policy gradient where you just input your current state into some black box and it outputs a thing to do so it has it has no it has no explicit notion of how the world works it simply knows that if i'm in this state and i do action 5 i get a i get a nice reward that's that's model free and you usually pair it yeah with like a simulator so you can get lots of data uh but you could okay. technically do this in the real world all right and the thing that it's learning i'm assuming is a, a deep neural network is that right yeah, though I guess here uh, probably a linear function would do, uh, given the given the right input um, input signals. Well, in the context of bonsai, how do I specify the parameter space that I'm learning? Is it whatever I want? Like, how does that get specified? So when you did the training for this ball, what what did you give it to learn? A neural network, a you know set of uh, linear functions or second order functions or what? I can't tell if you're asking me a trick question on purpose, but no, the, all of that is abstracted away. So you you just define the interface for the simulator. So what what's the simulator yeah. expecting? And then you define a kind of state graph where you say these are the inputs and these are the outputs, and then it will magically do everything for you. Yeah, but I'm, I want to know what the magic is because there is no magic. So what is it magically if you learning? Want to know, a DNA. If you want to what? know what the magic is, I think bonsai is not for you. Oh, I see. So they they keep that they secret. So it's it's some so so inside that black box, for all we know, it has models. Exactly, and I don't know whether they are doing some kind of auto ML in the background. Maybe they use different algorithms. Right. I don't know. Okay. So is okay. so that's all. But this is something that Tim and me have been discussing as well because I, I think that if we're talking about Project Bonsai, all of us are probably not the target group for this because we want to know what's ha what the magic is and we want to know what's happening in the black box. Um, sure. I think the idea of machine teaching is is that you can have these domain experts which are not necessarily engineers or technical and they can provide inputs to an algorithm. Um, Bonsai is also not catering to that target group because they are using their own code and you definitely need to have some kind of knowledge of what it does. Um, so that was actually a discussion me and Tim were having as for Luis's. I can tell you the target yeah. group because I, I did have this this conversation with them and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's fine for me to, to talk about this, which is um, the target group are enterprises that have very uh, difficult and valuable problems that they need to solve. So for example, imagine, I'm just gonna completely make something up here. Don't, don't, but, but it'll make the point. 
imagine I have a nuclear reactor and I'm trying to come up with a, a system that can control it in a better way, more efficiently, more safely, something like that. So obviously a problem that you're willing to invest quite a lot of money in has a lot of you know risk associated with it. So the bonsai team will then enter into an engagement where they work with your data scientists uh, and domain experts to to develop a, a an end product based on bonsai that will achieve that that KPI. So they're looking for very difficult, meaty, um, you know, industrial problems to solve. And then they're trying to be kind of the bridge between that data science scientist and the mm -hmm. domain expert or? Yep. Yeah, so well, they're trying to be the bridge between the customer's domain expertise and the, and the bonsai engine or, or system. And I guess also, you know, bringing, bringing to the table expertise and machine teaching so that they know how to um, carve up the data space such that they can employ machine teaching. And these are, and these are long engagements too. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. like, let's work together for months. Yeah, know, because this is my, my, my follow-up question, because um, does that mean that Bonsai can do this faster or better or compared to what a data scientist could do or what, what is kind of the added value proposition of Bonsai here? Yeah, I think it's data scientists obviously kind of have to wear many hats, right? I mean, there's there's yeah. a lot of algorithms to learn, whereas Bonsai are data science who are experts in, in this narrow domain of machine teaching, and, and maybe I'm not going to use the proper words here, but this reinforcement mm -hmm. learning, machine teaching. Um, and so they have a very deep expertise in that. So the value that they bring is, okay, yes, you have general data scientists who understand a lot of the observations and have domain expertise, but they aren't necessarily experts in employing machine teaching. We can, we mm -hmm. can bridge that gap. We can translate your, your knowledge that you have into this framework. And I guess the value proposition is that this framework of machine teaching plus reinforcement learning can solve problems that other methods um, either haven't been able to solve yet or, or can solve them you know, better in some way. Yeah. What, what I don't get in this is what's the little robot doing? Like if, if you go into, into a month long collaboration with some, some company, surely you're not going to plug some auto ML in, in at the end, right? Like surely the, the hurdle is not the whatever this programming language where you define these interfaces in some way like that's surely not like like i can do that in a day right it, it's if i have a month-long engagement those are not that's not where the where the time goes so i'm wondering how does this all connect to this ball balancey thing i think the key differentiator here is the formalization of how you train the machine learning model which is what machine teaching is. So most of these folks are not particularly interested in which particular algorithm is used. And that goes to show because in Bonsai, they don't even tell you which algorithm is used. The whole point of this is that the biggest problem is what's called ML litter, which is, or, or technical debt because of the entire machine learning process is completely backwards. M litter. M litter. M litter. Is that what we should call yeah, it? Yeah, well, exactly. Meg and I were. I, I thought the L already stands for litter. 
<laughs> it does. Yeah. But um, Meg and I were talking about this earlier, but at the moment, it's a horrible process. You have to go and get a whole bunch of data. You ex you give explicit instructions for labelers. This is how you label it. I then go and train a machine learning model on it. It's a complete black box. When my machine learning team get a new job at Google, I've lost all of the ability to reproduce the model. I don't understand how they created it. I've got no idea how this thing is built. All of the machine learning process is externalized around the software engineering process. It's not integrated. So machine teaching is kind of modularizing and kind of transforming the machine learning process itself into something that resembles software engineering. What's the best way to it? it it's just a control algorithm for formalizing the machine learning process. This, this is quite instructive. Right. Yep. So in an SVM, we have a training set with N items and it's Euclidean data points and, and we have tuples. So we have signals and labels and the labels are binary. So Steve is the learner and Steve wants to learn an optimal separating hyperplane, which is just this W vector, which is a Euclidean vector. And, and, that, and that's what the algorithm does. Mm -hmm. Now, what we do in machine learning is we are kind of uneconomical. What we do is we just throw all the data we've got at the algorithm and then the machine learning algorithm will inefficiently use that data and learn this hyperplay. Now, why don't we ask the question, what if we wanted to be super efficient? What is the minimum amount of data that we could give this SVM to get it to learn the optimal separating hyperplay? Well, it turns out we only need two examples. So machine teaching is all about finding the minimum or optimal data set to help the machine learner learn as efficiently as possible. I guess you, I think you need three for an SVM. Why is that? I guess that, well, the, the implicitly the zero point here is a data point. Yeah. Like if, if, yeah, if that, you, that you that usually, usually enough. have your, uh, your bias, so you need another data point, but this is, I mean, it's a, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit. So. In this case, what you want to do is you don't want to learn. You want to transmit the solution, right? right? right. So there is someone who, who already knows the solution because in order for that person to figure out which two or three data points to give to you, they have already had to solve the SVM. That, that's, now, that's what I was thinking too. Right? It's, 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 as, it's as if somebody said, yeah, you know, you're doing these old school linear fits and you're throwing in the data and you're calculating all these like error squares and everything. What if I could just come give you two numbers, a slope and an intercept, <laughs> and you could get the solution from this that? This is a hypothetical example. We get that. I get yeah, it, but, yeah. but some hypothetical yeah. examples are silly. Well, no, no, no. I, I think it's, uh, it serves the purpose quite well. So We'll hear you out. Yeah. Let me give one more illustrative example. So I want to estimate a Gaussian density in two dimensions. Okay, so you know I've got a whole bunch of um, Euclidean vectors again. And... So it looks something like this. I, I want to learn this optimal Gaussian density. What's the minimum number of examples I need? Turns out it's three, hmm. right? It's the number of dimensions plus one. Um, so again, it, it kind of serves the purpose because what fascinates me about this is it like, if we come back to the SVM, imagine if I had loads of extraneous red examples here and loads of extraneous blue examples here, the support vector machine algorithm would ignore them because they're not support vectors. They don't prop up the hyperplane. And I think this is quite illustrative because in almost all machine learning problems, most of the data is irrelevant. And uh, it's, not that, it's not that the algorithm would ignore it. It's that the solution would ignore it. The algorithm would very much pay attention to it. 
Right. Well, yes. Okay, it, it depends on what you call the algorithm. But Well, so in the case of the SPM, as you say, the yeah. decision function itself is only propped up by the support vectors. But yes. The algorithm in the dual formulation still works on this inner product matrix of all of the different examples. So computationally, you need to consider all of the examples. Mm -hmm. But that's hideously inefficient. Yeah. Because I guess what I'm saying is, is you can discard, let's say, 90% of those examples and the decision plane would be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you, you can't discard those without looking at them. Because if I change any one of those data points, they, they may now become one of the control well, This points. is when it gets interesting because, yes, you can. Because if you're a teacher... So, so let me, maybe I can frame this in a way that like, is not so uh, like architecture kind of, kind of driven, right? Which is sticking with the SVM example. Yeah. Okay, uh, the SVM algorithm, you know, it has a, a certain complexity and it's been ages since I worked with SVM. So I don't know what it is. You know, it takes a certain amount of CPU to look at every other data point or to look at every data point, right? Now, if somebody comes along and says, okay, you know, the thing is I have a different algorithm that uh, that's much more efficient to run and you can do a first pass and chuck out 95% of the data because we can ensure with, you know, very high asymptotic bounds or something that the 5% that are left, that the control points are somewhere in there. And then you can just run your SVM on that much smaller data set, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Like the teacher has this sort of Oracle algorithm that, that we assume is more efficient than just the SVM algorithm, or there's no point in running it in the first place and that it can run to, to screen our data down to a smaller subset, and then we can run the more expensive algorithm like on that. Let, let me, Is that the idea? Kind of, but I think you're framing it in, in, in a way which I don't like. I'm, fr you're, I'm framing it in a way that people thought about 40 years ago. That's probably why you don't like it, right? It's probably why a lot of people won't like it, especially uh, fanboys of machine teaching. Okay, look, look at this, look at this. So the main problem in reinforcement learning is the sample efficiency problem, right? If by default we learn, you know, um, uh, DeepMind brought out this DeepQ networks and they had superhuman performance on seven out of 26 Atari games. The only problem was it was hideously inefficient. They had to run millions and millions of training iterations to find the optimal policy. And this is a simple case where a little bit of domain knowledge can ridiculously cut down the amount of training you need to do. All we need to do as a domain expert is say, look, there are some ladders here. I strongly advise that you go and walk up these ladders. It will help you a lot. That, that is machine teaching. Well, to be clear, I mean, I think what Tim and me are, are kind of advocating for in a way is a mix of machine teaching and the normal machine learning because we it, for me it's really fun to listen to this because tim and me also started this whole thing with you know our bullshit radar going off and kind of being like you know why are we why are we even listening to this and why are we reading this but i think the point of what tim is making here as well instead of just like trying out every possibility in the universe and then learn you know having it learn that it needs to climb a ladder in a certain way to get to the top it's about kind of providing some guidance and saying, you know, you need to get to the top and you definitely need to climb a ladder. We don't know which ladder, we don't know what the most efficient, but you definitely need to climb a ladder. And then, you know, providing that guidance is kind of the machine teaching part. And then the rest we can leave to reinforcement learning or whatever form, other form you find suitable. Yeah, I mean, this is this is at the intersection of, uh, it, it just, it, ju it sounds like the intersection of a bunch of, of things that 
So one is this notion of inverse reinforcement learning or uh, imitation learning, um, where you sort of learn from expert demonstrations, right? And and you assume you have a bunch of of, of trajectories already given by experts, and that's you know supposedly those are good, and you're trying to imitate them as much as possible. The second one is sort of curriculum learning, where you assume that you have an expert that can sort of guide you in which examples are the next best to learn. And that's usually framed as sort of increasing difficulty, right? So first, the expert gives you easy examples, and then harder, and then harder, and then harder. And then the, the last one is um, reward shaping. And what you've described right now is is can be just classified as sort of reward shaping, I guess, uh, because what you're telling the model is the ladders are good, which it didn't know before, but you, you need to get this into the model somehow. And you get it into a reinforcement learning model either by demonstrating it, which is this IRL, inverse reinforcement learning, um, or by telling it, like telling it that's a good thing, which is reward shaping. So I, I see that the, I, I see the machine teaching angle, like that the framing of things, I, I don't see the novel, like I don't see what, what makes this its own field. So the reward shaping, that's because reinforcement learning has a horrible problem called sparse rewards, which is that quite often in a game like this, you only know that you've won if let's say you get to a certain part in the state space or you you climb to the top. And so reward shaping allows you to create intermediate reward signals. So, you know, you can have one as a function of height, for example, or you could have one as a function of being on the ladder. So I can see why you would think that's analogous to, to machine teaching, but I think machine teaching directly formalizes the protocol, if you like, theoretically between what, what does it look, almost like a, a game theoretical um, formalism of having a teacher and having a student and creating the optimal curriculum. But here, tell me what, what is this? For this game, how would you do that? How would you do machine teaching? So the, all machine teaching does, it's exactly the same as machine learning, but you are introducing ideas to the machine, to the machine learner, uh, which will be helpful. So I'm just trying but to- But how do you do it? <laughs> well, well, just to take a step back as well, I think, um, and this is kind of where we also said like, is this like, is this the marketing sauce or is this really the core of machine teaching? Because the paper from CIMAR really goes into that machine teaching would be able to fill the gap of us having two sparse resources of data science. And so that we can get domain experts, which are not data scientists, and we can still use their inputs to help train um, algorithms. I think this is the part where we're also having a bit of discussion, yeah. like, you know, again, is this machine teaching? Is this just a marketing term? Where does it stand? I personally am also not sure yet, uh, but I think it's, it's kind of good to mention this part as well. So I, I've been kind of wikipedicating myself for the last 10 minutes about, <laughs> you know, the definition of machine teaching. And uh, at least what I can see is the consensus is that machine teaching is the connection of human experts to machine learning, which is human expertise yes. being used to guide, uh, you know, filter the data set, whatever, structure the problem to guide, you know, so it's what we, we used to kind of call, or, or it's, it's an offshoot of feature engineering, right? Except instead of feature engineering, I'm going to be kind of engineering 
the uh, data set, filtering the data set, um, maybe maybe even structuring the search in a certain way. But but it seems that the essential point here is that it's, it's about human expertise being combined with machine learning. Yeah, I, I think is, is that it, it is. Correct? I think there are there are two components to it. So the first component is what we were just discussing, which is quite simply um, there is a huge domain of data, and there is a model space. And what's the most efficient data representation I can show to the learner to help the learner learn what we want to do? And that might not be one snapshot. It might be a curriculum. And I understand Yannick's point that that's basically um, something which already exists in the reinforcement learning world. The other thing is a new paradigm of software engineering, which is exactly as you say, having an interactive process with domain experts and modularizing the, you could call them feature extractors, you can call them modules, but rather than doing all the analysis post hoc, let's embed all the modularization and domain knowledge into the software engineering process, into the Git repos, making it reproducible and so on. Okay, so from my personal perspective, okay, there's absolutely nothing new here. This is just a repackaging slash renaming of things that people have been talking about for a very, very, very long time like 50 plus years, in my opinion. I, don't, I think Yeah, definitely. It also connects with, with active learning pretty well, right? Where, where, where it's just the machine that asks uh, for human input and so on. But, but I really want to get to this, like in this example of the ladder game thingy, or, or you can tell me with the little, little ball balancey thingy, how would you do it? Because I like the, to answer the question, the most efficient way for a teacher to transmit a solution to the student is to give it the solution, right? So clearly we're, so, we're sort of bound by not doing that because that, that would be just trivial. Uh, so it's, it's sort That's of, right. it's sort of the, as, as Keith said, the teacher has some idea of what's good and what's not good. And the teacher has some observation of what's going wrong with the student. And the teacher somehow infers which things do I need to show to the student, particularly to make those mistakes that the student still makes better, right? But are we then so, assuming so that the teacher knows the solution? Because I don't think that's always the case with machine teaching. That's correct. We should achieve the teacher does not the teacher only conceptually knows the solution because the solution in a machine learning algorithm is a whole bunch of parameters on a on a deep learning model. So of course the teacher doesn't know that, but it's very similar to teaching in the real world. If if you're a teacher at a school, you come up with a curriculum of concepts. If you want to teach language, you learn about tenses and pronouns and grammar and so on. And you teach the students all of these concepts because we recognize on some deep level that if you just gave loads of books to the students, they wouldn't be able to parse the structure. They wouldn't be able to build a conceptual understanding. So we give them a curriculum of, of learning. Now, the other thing is that most functions, like for example, the, the function of natural language understanding it's too complicated for any machine learning algorithm to learn. Even all of the data in the universe would not train a machine learning algorithm to understand natural language. It's impossible. The best hope that we have to have this data efficiency is to come up with a, a curriculum and kind of teach it in sequence. Yeah. So, so the, you, you, I, I see, I see that, but it's, if you get down to the, down to the actual algorithm. So with this orange ball, 
that is balancing on this plate. I'm, I suppose the choice you might have is where do you start on the plate? Where do you put the orange ball? So you can put it anywhere and you can give it sort of any momentum that you want. And instead of doing this just randomly, you can do this in sort of an orderly fashion by observing what the machine still does wrong, right? So you start maybe in the middle and you teach it to keep still and then you go a little bit more out and then you, you know, teach it to have it back to the middle and so on. So increasing instead of just starting by just smashing the ball onto it. I, I, that's, that's just classic curriculum learning. And then I was wondering in the jump ladder and so on, when you say you might tell the machine that it's good to use the ladders, that sounds like reward shaping. And so I agree a bit with, with, with Keith, um, in that it just seems a bit of a renaming. Yeah. And there, you know, I think it's worth mentioning the concept of an, of an Oracle, because at least in computability theory, you know, for, for many years, uh, they've studied things called oracles. So imagine you have an algorithm that's trying to do something difficult, like the traveling sales problem or three sat or factoring numbers or, or whatever. Um, sometimes you can consider, well, what if I had an Oracle that could answer a certain restricted question for me, like very efficiently, like in polynomial time? Does that then make it easier for me to solve solve this problem computationally? So I can't tell you how to build that Oracle, but suppose I had it, you know, what algorithms could I then employ? And this is a whole rich history of, of analyzing algorithms that have oracles. And you look at like, how many calls do you have to make to the Oracle? So in a way, like machine teaching is an Oracle that says, you know, should I pay attention to this data point or discard it? And you can kind of ask that like very quickly, or in the case of actual machine teaching, you just never even see those data points because the human has kind of filtered them in a sense. Um, so there's a lot of ideas here that are very old. And, and I think a lot of it is kind of a, a repackaging. And, and again, nothing against bonsai because look, execution is the name of the game, right? You can have brilliant ideas and sit in your basement all day long and achieve nothing. You know, it's the will to win that outweighs the skill to win. And so if they put together kind of these in a package that makes them applicable to actual real world industrial problems. Great. But I think it's a renaming of concepts um, that have been around for a very long time. That's true. I, I think one of the most powerful features in this machine teaching is the interactive nature of how you create a model. So there was an example from Microsoft Research called Pickle, and it allowed you to build a natural language processing model um, interactively. And it's kind of like, you know, we do what if analysis on models, you know, so it's saying, oh, um, currently this is the bias in your model and this is the accuracy and so on. And it makes this process interactively. So you start off with a candidate model and you have these features, you turn the features on and you can see how your classes are distributed on accuracy. And then you increasingly turn on features and you compose this hierarchy or taxonomy of features. And then you see, well, the accuracy still isn't very good because I'm still seeing um, my classes distributed across the, the output classes. And then what you're doing is you're increasingly kind of paying attention to where you need to improve your model. And then you're making right. your model just good enough to work and you're creating a kind of transparency on how your model works, which means you don't just need to focus on accuracy and you can do um, a bias and fairness mm. as well, for example. And rather than it being a post hoc yeah. thing, it's actually part of the creation. 
personally, I would like to make a separation between kind of machine teaching as a concept. And I think then below machine teaching, there are many branches. I think Project, Project Bonsai is a branch of that. I think Microsoft's Lewis is also in a way a branch of machine teaching, etc. cetera. Um, because for me, I think Bonsai has its advantages and has its limitations. Um, and focusing on machine teaching as the core, which I would very briefly summarize as, you know, in, in collaboration with machine learning, guiding, uh, using human domain expert knowledge to guide machine learning algorithm in whatever interactive way or whatever vessel you choose. And yeah, I, I find it really interesting to hear about you guys saying as well, like there are definitely concepts that are familiar with this. And I, as I said before, I found it really difficult to kind of understand the core of what does this machine teaching actually mean and what does it actually do if you take away all of the, the marketing sauce, so to say. Yannick, what's your take on this idea? Because, you know, we have complexity theory and, it, and it's saying, well, you, you can have all of these different controllers, if you want, for how we feed data to the machine learning algorithm. And with passive learning, when we just throw all of the data, the complexity is kind of like a, a function of one over N, which is the number of training examples. So this this seems like it would take very long to learn the concept we want to learn. Active learning is slightly better. And then this teaching is, uh, I think that's meant to be constant time, is it? Uh, what's your take on that? It's correct. Like, so so, so active, active learning is sort of can ask this Oracle, but still sees the data that it sees, right? Active learning sort of can't, can't choose which data it sees. The, the concept is simply the machine can ask you if it's not sure, and then usually want to minimize some sort of budget. Uh, here, teaching guides, I, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what, uh, whatever, reward shaping, curriculum engineering, inverse reinforcement learning, and so on, learning from expert demonstrations is. But you, you see, actually, on this very slide, where it says data, which I suppose is the optimal solution, the only data point the model gets to see is data. So that's actually transmitting the solution. Like this, the, the very slide here is the machine teacher just tells the student the solution. <laughs> yeah, so that's not right. a very arduous uh, learning process then. I mean, I get, I'm not arguing that this is machine teaching and it's, uh, it, it certainly like it is, it is, as Keith says also, it's very, it's probably one of the most important things if you really want to bring machine learning, especially something like reinforcement learning into practice, into industrial applications. It's probably immensely important that you can get some data efficient pipeline to run that's also reproducible and so on. Like the, the entire teaching and input pipeline, how you build the data set, it seems very important in practice. And so, so that's, it's, but two things can be true at the same time. It can be very important, very cool. And, you know, the, so that someone does this in a clean fashion is important uh, and it can also be very old. This theoretical framework I was showing, is, is that, does that have value in your opinion? Uh, sure, you can, I, I think you can, do, you can do all kinds of theory around this and you can say, as, as, as we said before, if, if you have some sort of oracle that can you know, sort of guide you and we all know what is meant, right? The human doesn't know the solution. The human doesn't know what parameters the linear controller should take, but the human sort of knows 
which examples are difficult, which examples are easy, where, where is the thing still making mistakes, right? The human can tell and then the human can sort of guide the machine uh, to where, you know, it should go, especially domain experts in industrial applications. They, they might be like, oh yeah, I know this is a corner case. I know this is a corner case and here it's still doing some, something stupid. Um, so that's, and the, the theory around this is, I'm sure is very beautiful. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it, there, there's much newness. Maybe there is, I don't know. Have you, can you guys see my screen? Yep. Yeah. So I've actually been making this kind of point for years and giving talks to customers, which is that, you know, machine learning is human guided. There's, it's not magic learning. We haven't gotten to the point yet where we just say, you know, computer, make my business more profitable. Okay. I can help you with that. Right. And it runs off and just solves all your problems. And the example that I always give is, is chess. And this is admittedly a bit dated because you're going to see it doesn't reflect, uh, alpha, alpha, uh, zero, but I don't have any reason to believe things have changed. Um, but the thing is, you know, chess is a well-defined, simple game, right? I mean, it's super simple compared to the real world. It has a 1500 year recorded history, millions of recorded games. And not only that, it has kind of 50 plus years of computer science research into how to make programs that play chess. It was kind of one of the original AI problems, if you will. And sure enough, you know, not long ago, we did reach a point where machines just utterly obliterate people. I mean, your cell phone can obliterate, you know, Magnus Carlson, right? And and you look at Komodo there, it has like a ranking of 3393 on a, on a laptop versus him, which is 500 points below, which means he never wins, right? But there's actually something which beats machines, and this goes back for a very long time, which is cyborgs. You know, that's man plus machine, right? So you have a person, uh, and these are two of the world's kind of experts in playing both against computers as well as cyborg chess, Kramnik and Anand. And they sit there with a computer screen that has kind of multiple lines of analysis and whatnot, but they help guide guide the game according to sort of human intuition and strategic thinking about how to beat the opponent that they're playing against, right? And they they can beat just pure machines 85% of the time. And imagine like if you're in an industrial scenario, like Yannick just brought up, right? With a factory that has many millions of real-time continuous variables that nobody spent 50 years of, of modeling, of course, human expertise is going to play an essential role there. I think this is kind of undeniable. And so if the bonsai framework makes it more systematized, easier to do that, easier to automate, that's great. But I don't think the concept that human expertise should guide machine learning is, is anything new. But just on that, though, is that still the case? If you ran uh, DeepMind's AlphaZero algorithm on chess? Well, I don't think the answer is known yet because data, like... Alpha Zero is not open, correct? You can't just download it and run it yourself. Yeah, you can. I mean, you, you could implement it. Is it? It's a fairly trivial algorithm. Yeah, it, it's not. It's not well, super their, trivial their to get it to work. Um, oh, yeah, the, the compute is the, is the difficult bit. Also, the the the, the fine details of engineering. But I I recall yeah. I've I recall a Lex Friedman podcast from not more than two weeks ago where at least he claimed that this was still the case, that humans plus machines are still better than the best machines. 
Well, no, but I, I don't know of anyone testing it yet mm-hmm. in chess with Alpha Zero. Would love to see it. Um, my intuition tells me it's probably still going to be the case that humans can add value to to the equation because there has been a lot of analysis of Alpha Zero's games, right? And while it is obviously obliterates human beings, you know, and and maybe even is even approaching some limit of kind of perfect play. We're not there yet, right? And it still has certain styles and prefers kind of certain types of games uh, and things like that that are that are recognizable. So, but, but forget about it. Suppose suppose it no longer applies to chess. But it definitely right. applies to the much more complex real world. I, I just want to know why, because the only reason that could possibly be true is because it's a heuristic search algorithm, and we are not searching a whole bunch of the tra- trajectories. If we- well, that's obvious. That's obviously the case. Like AlphaGo is absolutely not searching every pathway. It's just it's using heuristics that instead of them being coded by a human being, they were they were discovered, if you will, by some type of a you know uh, machine learning. But it's still applying heuristics. It's still cutting down branches. You know, it's not exploring the whole search space. And the value that human beings have is look. Just let's all pretend, whether you believe it or not, for the moment, that we're just bio-machines. Like up here in our head is a very complicated, uh, marvelously evolved, or however you want to look at it, um, piece of machinery. A nanomachine, you know, a bunch of nanomachines working together to solve problems. And they've had billions of years to, to achieve a very sophisticated degree of computation in a very low power footprint of kind of 20 watts or whatever. So it's not surprising that that machine up there can overlay some value onto some other machine. Hmm. You know, even if it was like a weak learner, it still may have, it still may, and that's what happens in kind of the cybernetic case is that is for chess, is that people just have a vague intuition that, you know what, for this game, I think we should really just focus on the queen side attack. I mean, for human beings, we perceive it as as a gut instinct. But what's happening there is a very deep kind of analysis that you just don't have access to at a at a conscious level. It's just a, a bit that's turning on in your head that's a result of some subconscious analysis. And then you let the yeah, machine, but- which is much more precise, kind of take over the details of working on that queen side attack. I have a feeling we're all saying the of- same thing, actually. I feel like we're all saying that machine teaching definitely has value to add because it is human input in whatever way you want to, you know, what name you want to give it. it. I think the only thing we're disagreeing on is, is this something new or is this just a fancy way of packaging something that's in, indeed very old? Right. And I'm on that side. This is a, and I, I don't want to say fancy. This is a, this an, it's an actual implementation and packaging of, of powerful ideas that are old. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. got some renaming in there to make it new and exciting, right? Um, but but what Bonsai does, though, is it, it's like the data bricks of reinforcement learning. It gives you a SAP. Sure. It's got the, the ephemeral compute auto scale. It hides yep. away, you know, enough detail. It gives you the simulations. So, I mean, it's it's just kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's what execution is what matters. Not sitting around going, these are great ideas, you know. Executing on those ideas is the hard part. Yeah. And so Bonsai has put together an executed platform to do this. Um, and, but of course, because of the nature of marketing psychology, we got to rename some things, right? We got to come up with a cool new name, come up with a n- new language and call it inkling, even though we could have 
could have done it with Python or JSON or, you know, whatever. But uh, that's just part of the glitz, right? Um, but the hard part was just the actual packaging and implementation of it in a productionized form. So so even just take AutoML, all right? So as far as I know, most of the commercial AutoMLs are black boxes. Like you don't actually know what their recipe is behind the scenes. That's not true, right? I don't think. On, on the Azure one, it's all open source. No, it's not. It is. Azure's, well, I just talked to the guys three months ago and they said it, it was black box, what the recipe. I, I got to gotta go, people. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Right, cheers. It was lovely Sorry. meeting you. This, this thing is yeah. nice. I can't, I can't stop staring at this ball. Like, the ball. It is, yeah. it is it's crazy. so good, right? I told him to make like an animated yeah. background of it. It's so nice. So absolutely. Put two up yeah. there. What happens if you put two this up there? This is the biggest. This is the mm, best. We tried. It doesn't ever. work. I, I want bonsai now. <laughs> does it doesn't work in two? Doesn't work with It doesn't two. generalize to two? So I think maybe Chalet would say it's not intelligent if it can't generalize to two. <laughs> Just interpolating the data points well, on the input. So, yeah. So in its current form, it is still very much a service-oriented consulting engagement. It hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been developed to the point where it's just a, a, a little tool that you go and install and run off and, and do your problem. You know, you can try to do that. But, but right now it's, it's built around, like I was saying, working on these very difficult, um, large-scale expensive problems that justify working closely with the bonsai engineers to utilize and build the system that you need with the platform. Right. Well, I think what would be interesting is to retrain it with, with can you change the model to have the physics for two balls or I, th I think would they have to implement that? Because if that, if that were the case, then the simulation interface should have a second ball, right? Yeah. I would think you would have to write a new simulator, but I wasn't sure how it was built there. Yeah. Cause one interesting thing, Keith, is that they, the first version of the tutorial, um, there's a problem with um, sim to real generalization. So in the first in the first tutorial, the ranges of the inputs are fairly um, they're softball. You know, they're they're quite easy ranges. So in the second tutorial, to make it generalized to the actual physical de device, you increase the ranges and you also add another couple of properties in. So the size of the ball and the thickness of the shell, and mm -hmm that apparently is enough to, to increase the dynamics in the model to make it generalized to the real device, hmm. which is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the shell thickness influences its um, angular momentum like significantly. Does it? So a, yeah. So a hollow two balls with the same weight, one that has a cavity will have a much higher, you know, uh, um, angular inertia or momentum for a, for a given uh, radial velocity. The weight is on the, on the outside. Because this, this is illustrating the need for domain expertise, because clearly you know about maths and physics and, and you, you would have just known to do that because what you're doing is you're not giving them, you're not telling the model what the solution is. It's domain right. knowledge. It's awareness of where, where is the, um, where, where do I need the model to learn more about the dynamics of the system? And that's kind of a, in the, in the talk I give on, on machine learning is not magic learning. Like I talk a lot about that, which is, you know, these examples of, look, 
you know, human beings have been working for tens of thousands of years to kind of figure out physics and, and whatnot. And in principle, if you had a deep enough neural network and enough data, it could learn all those things. You know, it could learn Newton's laws somehow in there represented in some some neurons. Right. But that's that's not so efficient. We need to have ways to let human beings incorporate this sort of the product of our of our labor of science to give it a big head start and to allow it to use whatever investment we've made in neurons to let it use those as efficiently as possible on things that we haven't yet figured out. But and that goes back actually to a lot of the conversations we've been having on, you know, invariance and equivariance and, and structures and topological learning. I think those are all along the same lines of how do we encode, you know, prior knowledge human prior knowledge in such a way that machine learning can take advantage of it. That's true. But then there is this bias variance trade-off. So it, it is possible that introducing too much bias, which is what we're doing, can actually cause problems. Sure. But I don't think we're at that stage yet for these kinds of problems. Like introducing the idea of angular momentum is not going to bias the problem in the in the wrong direction. Like that's pretty solid. We, we know that one's pretty accurate well yeah but that's because it's it's a it's a physical quantity yeah because if you put in some heuristic in there as we would do with featureization and machine learning like i don't know some weird oddity on the shape of the ball or something then that could have a perverse and unintended uh, consequence in the dynamics of the model yeah and i i don't i, I so i this can be done poorly i totally agree with that, which is why, you know, we had some conversations once with, um, I think Yannick made this point that, you know, if you include the, the idea that the sky is up, then that's going to cause a problem. If you ever get flipped upside down, you know, now you're, now you're going to get confused. And I point out that the way that you handle that is you, instead you encode a notion like the sky, there is a sky in some direction and then allow that direction to be a free parameter. So you have to, you have to allow the machine enough play, enough flexibility um, that, it can, that it can find the correct solutions, but we don't need to give it a tabula rasa. We can, we can encode some basic concepts as long as we always provide it like an out, you know, a way to get out of that local minimum, if you will, if it doesn't actually fit the data, it can escape you know, with, a, with enough evidence that it should try to escape. I think that's fine. And Tim, honestly, if I were you, I don't know if it's possible, but you have a couple of hours of footage now of just a bonsai thing, like playing with the ball. I would seriously make, make it a, a separate webcam. video and just say like cal a calming video of, you know, machine trying to no, make it a live or feed. something because I could look at that thing for hours. Make, yeah. it a live, make it a live webcam feed and then people can log in and watch your ball balancing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the I think we you can get like pretty good amount of views. <laughs> And the, put a little, um, put like a little hair dryer or something that kind of is perturbing it once yeah, in a while yeah. to keep it going. Um, maybe once yeah. in a while your cat will jump up there and swat at it, and that'll become like mm. a big, a big hit. Yeah, I was going to say the Norwegians pioneered this format of television called slow television, and it's just um, it'll be a, um, a video of a cruise line they're going through the fjords for twelve hours, or like a you know a, oh, a train going. Those are so good. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be just like that. It'll be it'll be therapeutic. I could play lo-fi videos, right? Where it's like a really calming music while you're studying, and you all you see is this person just typing on their laptop for a couple of hours. It's amazing. 
exactly. Well, it's just like in the in the show Silicon Valley, they had this osprey cam. It was like a camera set up on an osprey's nest to show like how high definition their their feed was and compressed over the web and whatnot. And it was yeah. kind of like had like a I don't know. Uh, 10 concurrent viewers or whatever for a long, long time. And then some, uh, some like forest worker employee was, was going there to, you know, somehow do something for the nest, like make sure the chicks were okay or whatever. And he fell down the mountain and got like severely injured and the camera fell with him. And then it became like millions of people are like watching the, the feed. While he's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of here. You know, it's like, <laughs> Like a big national <laughs> drama. So funny. Uh. Okay, well, folks, it's been emotional. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got a great video. So, yeah, I, I don't think um, I think Microsoft will be taking me off their Christmas card list after this one. But... You get Christmas cards we're gonna from have Microsoft. To, we're going to have to blur my. <laughs> we need to blur my face. Let's blur my face and obscure my name, you know, and voice. So it's like. <laughs> I believe the bonfires, you know. Teeth Cugger. Teeth Cugger. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm not sure about machine teaching. However, maybe. 